This is basically a slash em up platforming game that has elements of Dark Souls in it. Uh, so a lot of oh, the. Oh, hey uh, guys, this is Chris from the Collector Cast. Did somebody <laughs> say Dark Souls? Hey, Chris, what are you doing in here, man? <laughs> Oh man, that was great. <laughs> it's like the magic uh, words, you know. Right, right. He's like he's like a damn genie when you <laughs> say that word. <laughs> You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where Single Banana and I, Ghost 81 discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and played by a community of gamers on RF Generation and social media platforms like Twitter. Every episode features input from the community and maybe some guests. In episode 56, we'll dive into the dystopian city of Rapture, hidden deep below the sea and filled with many dangerous surprises. We'll take a deep look at the game as well as the philosophy that inspired it. As usual, all spoilers are on the table, so play the game first if you wish. You can listen to our show on Podbean and iTunes, where we always appreciate a good review. On Twitter, we're at RFG Playcast and Rich is at The Single Banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thanks for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. Francois, c'est pas flush and I'll do, and you don't stop. Sure shot, go out to 
Check, check, hello, check, check. check one, two, Ooh. looking good, and now a moment of silence. For our dead homies, rich as nuts. I would... <laughs> 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 All right, well, you didn't let me do my uh, my little setup bit that I was trying to do here, but I'll let you explain that in a minute, but first I want to celebrate the fact that I have a hot cup of coffee in front of me. Yes, and this me is too. Uh, this is a dream, man. Because back in the day, we used to have you know adult beverages. Uh, now I'm a teetotaler, so I usually have uh, some water or seltzer. God forbid, because that'll make me belchy. But this morning, we're doing a recording session. It's 9 a.m. where I am here, and this is <laughs> this is just dandy. I, I'm so excited about this. But, what and, the f*** has happened to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is my dream, but there's a specific reason that we're doing this that you kind of alluded to, and uh, I, I wonder if you'd like to explain that to the audience. Yeah, I had the snip, man. I got three kids and uh, decided, you know, enough was enough. I didn't need another surprise like my third child, so uh, yeah, just went ahead and had that taken care of, man. Um, had it done two days ago and doing great. Awesome. Good for you. Congratulations. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I mean, that's cool. Good on you for, um, you know, taking care of that, I guess. I actually wore my tuxedo for this call because I'm feeling so impotent. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad we're starting this one off so classy, man. <laughs> Well, the next thing I have on the list is fiber. And I was looking at the list. I was like, what the hell, man? What What is fiber? I'm like, was I wanting to talk about my bowel problems or something? And then I remembered, have you ever done that? Like where you write something down on an outline and then you you, you kind of forget what it was about because oh, yeah. it's just like a little blurb. But uh, you're going to be happy about this, man. They are installing fiber in my neighborhood. Oh, uh, like Google Fiber? Um, Actually, yeah. AT&T is okay. installing okay. fiber lines in my neighborhood. Should have that in about you know a few months or so. Nice. So that that'll be uh, an upgrade to the system you're already on. Basically, you don't have to resubscribe or change providers or anything. Uh, you know that's what I'm worried about. I won't have to change providers. The concern for me is what I've heard about fiber is that it's limited to so many spots in each neighborhood. Like only so many people can be on it. Yeah. So. My worry is what they're going to do is they're going to try to go for new subscribers first. 
because, you know, it's all about the money and right. not let us know about it who are already on AT&T. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, that is a concern. So I'm going to have to stay on top of it. I talked to a guy that came out last week that was telling me about it. I was having some modem issues again. And um, he told me that the price would not change. So, you oh, know, cool. that's... Yeah, that's cool, man. I'm I'm pretty pumped about that. But uh yeah, I've come a long way, man. Yeah. From uh <laughs> from, from recording on Wi Fi to uh now being plugged in and uh possibly be getting on fiber. So uh yeah, take that guys from uh the RF Gen chat. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, you're still gonna get roasted. It doesn't matter. Oh <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> All right. Well, let's roll into um, a movie that both of us saw, because that'll give me a chance, as usual, to plug my blog article for the month. I ended up watching a movie that was much hyped for a while as a good indie film. And everybody loves, you know, the little indie film that could, that gets a huge amount of buzz and Mm -hmm. was filmed for almost no money and then makes a big splash. So this movie called Beyond the Gates, which as of the time of this recording is on Netflix in America, I watched this with my wife and I felt compelled to write a review of it because it's, I would say, tangentially related to video gaming in that it is a horror movie about a VHS board game. And I realize that a lot of our younger listeners or my readers on the site might not realize that VHS board games were kind of a thing back in the day. Oh, yeah. I had one. Yeah. Tell me about it. I don't know if you've remembered it or not, but I had the board game Nightmare. Do you remember that? It came in like a blue rectangular box and it was just kind of a horror themed game, which actually I believe is where this movie has kind of taken the idea from. And uh, you would roll dice and stuff and go around a board. You would pop in a VHS cassette and you would play it. And all of a sudden, like everything would be dark and it would be playing music and then it would go stop. And, like, in the middle of your play, like, this guy, I think his name was the Gatekeeper, which was this guy in this hood. He sort of looked like uh, Emperor Palpatine, you know, in uh, Return of the Jedi. He would kind of pop out and he would tell you, you know, what player had to make a certain action or a certain move. And then the tape would go back to black and play music again. And you would just kind of play the board game that way using the VHS tape. So, yeah, pretty neat concept. Yeah, it's something that um, I was aware of when I was younger, but never, I don't have any memories of actually participating in any of these. I did mention in my article that we had a a Wheel of Fortune game that had this kind of handheld device that went with it, but you didn't have to play the VHS game to play with the handheld device. You could actually just type puzzles and then hand it to somebody and have them try to solve your puzzle by playing Wheel of Fortune. You know, that was my only experience with owning a VHS game, and we didn't even use the VHS tape. But the movie focuses on these two brothers who... Uh, They're shutting down their family's video store, which has gone out of business after their father has gone missing. And in the back office of the store, they find this mysterious VHS game and they end up playing it with one of the brother's girlfriends. So there's three main characters. And from there, it just gets spooky and mysterious. And as I noted in my article, surprisingly gory, which is awesome. At the end of the day, I'd appreciate anybody who wants to go read my article, but if you're just listening to this, I give the movie like a very light recommendation. 
because of the uniqueness of it, the 80s nostalgia and the gore aspects. But for me, the movie just kind of moved so slowly and there were kind of boring parts to it. It really straddled the line between being like this atmospheric kind of dialogue-y movie that wasn't trying to rush things and then but but then going a little bit too slow. But if it was like gun to head, thumbs up or thumbs down, I'd give it a thumbs up. But it's a very, like I said, a very light recommendation. You've seen it. So what what are your thoughts on that? I actually saw it this year and it wasn't on my radar, actually. Um, the reason I saw it is I went to a co-worker's house. I, I worked with this girl who's a big horror fan and um, her husband's a huge horror fan as well. And they selected the movie, and it just so happened to be Beyond the Gates, uh, which, you know, we watched over Netflix. I'd never heard of this film before. And so we started watching it and everything, and, you know, I was enjoying it. But like you said, it does have a slow pace. The acting in it is, eh, it's a little over the top. It's not the best, but it does have one person in it that I really enjoyed, and that is Barbara Crampton. She's very um, well-known in the horror universe, and she actually plays sort of the gatekeeper or the person with the keys that shows up on the VHS cassette that you see. So I thought that was a very cool nod, not only to her, but to, you know, 80s horror in general. I agree with you very much. I'm very lukewarm on this film. The 80s nostalgia is cool. It's really fun when you get to uh, go into the video store and you see all the VHS cassettes like lined up on the walls and everything. And you just kind of get to pull out titles and say, oh, look, there's a copy of that. (laughs) You know, I remember that one. That's really cool for nostalgia purposes. But yeah, it's fun. It's campy. But if you're looking for like a very suspenseful or, um, you know, scary horror film, I don't think I would go for this one. But great idea. Poor execution is kind of my thoughts on that film. Yeah, I agree. It's not a complete waste of time. It's such a... No. And movies like this are hard. And I mentioned this in my article, too. You can watch a movie that is quote unquote so bad it's good and you can tell everybody Mm -hmm. to watch it because it's a fun experience you know to have a couple drinks and watch it with your buddies it's so bad it's good it's funny and then there are movies that are bad and not worth watching because they're so bad and this kind of falls in the middle not to say that it's bad but it's in between so bad it's good and just generally disappointing and uh, yeah. I hope the people who made this go on with a bigger budget for something else and see what they can do in the future. Yeah, and I think you make a good point there. It's like they couldn't decide if they wanted to go with something scary or if they wanted to go with something campy. And it just kind of ends up somewhere in the middle, like very indecisive. Right. That's a good way to describe it. Let us all play the first game together. I want each of you to take a turn to roll the dice. What are you waiting for, huh? Do it! Don't waste my time, for you have precious little of it. Time's up. And if you haven't yet had a turn... You can blame it on the others, not me. Now, who rolled the highest number? Answer me! Time's up. If you answered in time, you may take a key. But if you failed, 
You have lost a precious prize. As for the one who rolled the lowest number, answer me. You will miss a turn. All right. Well, that's our film for the month, or my uh, article uh, plug there. So let's roll into the concert cast. I picked up a couple tickets. And I wasn't expecting to, and just so everybody's aware, I plan to go over my albums of the year next month, and so far I only have four, and I'm probably going to only have four, so stay tuned and tweet at me, what are your albums of the year, and I'm hoping that that's part of what we can do for the concert cast next month. So as far as me, again, you don't plan on these things, but you see a concert announcement and you're just, oh, I'm just going to get tickets. So in January, I'm going to see this band called Snail Mail, which is actually the stage name of one particular young woman rather than the name of a band. But it's just kind of cool, mellowish indie rock. She has one album and it came out this year, I believe. So she's new on the scene kind of thing. And it's a kind of album when you first hear it, and we've talked about shoegaze before, Rich, there's a kind of take it or leave it quality to it. If it gets too boring, it can put you to sleep rather than engage you. But this album, which is called Lush, is just captivating enough, just melodic enough that once you start listening to it, at least for me, it kind of dug its way into my heart and I had to listen to it a ton of times, and then again saw that she was playing at the Mohawk, which I've mentioned many times is my favorite Mm -hmm. venue here in Austin, uh, in January, so I'm going to go to that. The other show that I have is, do you know the band Mineral? No, you asked me about this, I think, in a text. I haven't heard of them before. So Mineral, they're like an older emo indie band, and if you know the band Sunny Day Real Estate, the sound and tone of the music is very similar. But I think Mineral, they're not a Sunny Day Real Estate ripoff per se, but they're in very similar genres, if you're familiar with that kind of music. And I didn't realize that they're actually from Austin, and they were around in the 90s. They made, I think, two studio albums and then broke up for a very long time. And then they got back together within recent years and have gone on little tours and such. So I don't know if I would have bought tickets for this necessarily. They were a band that I liked when I was younger, but I was never super into them. However, I have a friend coming in from out of town. It's at, the show is actually on Valentine's Day, February 14th. And uh, I have a friend coming into town to run the Austin Marathon that weekend. So shout out to Emily. She's going to be <laughs> visiting Austin and uh, we are going to take her to see Mineral that night. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, I'd recommend to you, Rich, I think you would like them because I have that kind of serious emo indie, quiet, and then sometimes heavy, very emotional music. So I'm looking forward to that. Awesome, man. That sounds great. Yeah, I'll have to definitely check those bands out. 
Um, as far as the concert lineup that I've got going on, I really don't have anything very near in the horizon, but I did recently find out that Iron Maiden would be playing in July of next year, and tickets have already gone on sale. That's going to be around the Charlotte area, of course, big venue and uh, dealing with Ticketmaster. I tried to order tickets the other day for it, and you can't get physical tickets. They want to put them on your phone. Okay. So I'm very irritated by that. Yeah, physical only. <laughs> right. Well, and there's another reason too. And um, that is, I'm taking my kids, my older son and daughter, oh, wow. um, big Iron Maiden fans. Uh, and so that was going to be a part of their Christmas. So I wanted to be able to put that, you know, in a package with some shirts uh, and have them open it up in front of my in laws who will be totally disgusted by it on Christmas morning. <laughs> And uh, I thought that would just be like a really cool thing. But, you know, of course, now what am I supposed to do? Print off a page of an email and stick it in there? I mean, it's, you know, it's just totally ridiculous. And uh, I'm going to kind of wait a little bit and see what I can do. Maybe I can get them through another venue. I'm just going to do some lawn seats for it because with kids, it's just more comfortable to spread out. And oh, yeah. with the um, the loudness of the whole thing, being that far away from it's great. So, um They've been bugging me about going to see them, and uh, I think they're going to be super, super pumped about it. And as a father, this just uh, warms my cockles. All right. (laughs) (laughs) As warm as those can be right now. Right. (laughs) Now, tell me this. I mean, our listeners know, and you know, I'm not the biggest heavy metal fan in the world. We've talked about this before, and I have almost no familiarity with Iron Maiden. I actually remember in seventh or eighth grade, our history teacher played us their song about Alexander the Great. Oh, uh, okay. Um, I do remember that. But to a newcomer, which album or albums would you recommend? Oh, man, that is a really good question. I think probably their best album is Number of the Beast. I think that is where you should start. Probably my other two favorite albums are Peace of Mind and Power Slave. Those, for me, are like the three that I think are kind of essential. As a kid, I first discovered them when I was in Boy Scouts and, you know, all my troop members are all kind of metalheads and stuff and they're passing around cassettes. And uh, I started with Power Slave. That was the first album I'd listened to. And as a kid, you see all these T-shirts, you know, with Eddie on them, who is their, uh, you know, their mascot. It looks very scary to a young kid, this type of music. But as an adult and as you listen to this music, a lot of their songs are very historical. Like, uh, for instance, off Peace of Mind, this, the song Run to the Hills is about the white man's persecution of Native Americans. And uh, like you said, there's a song about Alexander the Great. They also do uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It's actually a song based on that story. And uh, yeah, it, it's just really cool, man. They're very intellectual about what they sing about in historical events. Aces High is about World War II dogfighting. So it's very neat uh, and a very great concept for a band. But it kind of falls on that line, like I said, of things that you're completely terrified of as a kid. But as you get older, you realize, man, this is actually pretty cool. And, uh, you know, they definitely have this uh, voice, as uh, many metal bands do, about the um, atrocities of war and such. So it's kind of a, a neat message as well. 
So yeah, those are probably the albums I would say look out for, of course, uh, Number of the Beast, Peace of Mind, and uh, Power Slave. Cool. I'll cue them up and give them a shot. Yeah, man. Give it a listen. Something I also wanted to talk about, I know that last time I really didn't have a concert, so I thought maybe I would just sort of talk about maybe some music that I'd recently gotten into. Yeah. And so if you follow me on Twitter, you would have noticed I picked up a copy of an album called Icicle Works by the same band. I originally heard one of their songs on XM Radio on the uh, New Wave station. And so I really liked it. And the record was three bucks. And I was like, yeah, I'll take a chance on this. You know, I at least know I like one song off of it. Right. So it can't be that bad. But I come to figure out this is kind of neat and kind of ties into you and I. They are actually named after a Frederick Pohl short story called The Day the Icicle Works Closed. And we've talked about Pohl's novel Gateway, which we both read in uh, one of our earlier shows. So I thought that was kind of neat. I've only listened to their first album. I would say definitely if you're into new wave music, it's one worth checking out. The first song on there actually appeared in an episode, I believe, of Stranger Things. So uh, check that out if you get a chance. And then some other vinyl that I picked up uh, over Thanksgiving. When I was in Atlanta, uh, I went to a little five-point section, which is a really neat shopping center in Atlanta. Picked up a copy of Metallica's first album, Kill 'Em All. And then another album by a band called Songs Ohio called Magnolia Electric Company. I don't know if you're familiar with that band. Uh, the lead singer, he died of alcohol poisoning several years ago. And this is sort of his magnum opus album. And probably one of my favorite albums of all time. And was lucky enough to uh, pick that up on vinyl. Wow. That's it for me. I think that you tend to like these kind of tragic figures in music these tragic haunted uh, you know people who have a lot of troubles and maybe kind of build their guts into their work would you say that's accurate you know i don't know if it's that i like troubled people necessarily but i like people who sing about things that are real that are everyday life that are realistic that maybe i can say oh well i've experienced that too you know um one of my favorite singers, Richard Buckner, sings a lot about heartbreak. His best albums are when he goes through relationships and they end. And uh, so yeah. he's such a great wordsmith as well. I think there's something about music that I like and how certain artists' vocals or you know certain lines that they come up with stick with you. I think a lot of times those things do end up being tragic. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think as I've said on this show a lot of times, everything's not sunshine, rainbows, and unicorn farts. The same way I watch movies is the same way I take music in. It's very much something that I want to be real. For instance, my wife watching her Christmas Hallmark movies last night that are so predictable. I came in, like, in the last five minutes, I was like, oh, yeah, she's not going to get married. She's going to marry this other guy instead. And then her sister's going to marry the groom. Right. You know, it's so predictable and everything ends happily for everyone. And that's not life, man. I want something that's real. I want to feel something that's real when I'm reading a book, watching a movie or uh, listening to music. So I don't think I search out disturbed or (laughs) people with uh, problems. I think I just sort of uh, relate to some of the stuff they're going through at times, you know? Yeah, no, I understand that. And when I talk about my albums of the year, one of them is very much in that vein. And uh, I've mentioned uh, a rapper, Danny Brown, many times, and he's one of my favorite artists out there. And he just 
the things he raps about is just the absolute like mental torment of trauma and addiction. And it is very heavy. It can be hard to listen to for sustained periods of time. So I also do like kind of appreciate it in a way that you can relate to it. I know like Chris Cornell, when he was alive, said that the songs he writes are out there to help people that can relate to some of the darker topics that he was singing about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's what it's there for. And uh, it can be very, very useful. to news we actually don't have anything noted here and that doesn't mean that there's no news items in the world it just means that none of them really caught our attention there is one thing rich that we might be able to just touch on really quickly because our game of the month is bioshock and i actually used and have in front of me and i'm going to use for the show a prima strategy guide for the bioshock trilogy do you know why that is noteworthy for a news segment? I do not, sir. Please elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> Prima Guides went out of business, I think it was a, a month or two ago. So everybody was talking about this on Twitter. And the consensus is that, well, maybe this was a long time coming because we all use FAQs that we look up on the internet and yeah. we watch YouTube playthroughs. But I don't know about you, but I have a huge stack of strategy guides that I've collected over the years. And despite my urge to sell, give away, or recycle them, I've held on to them. And some of them are very important to me uh, mm -hmm. as far as memories or using them. 
And it was kind of cool to use an actual strategy guide for this playthrough. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on this. I get the idea that print media is dead. We talk about this a lot, the digital versus physical dichotomy of collecting and concert tickets that you just touched on. And <laughs> yeah. now we can discuss strategy guides. I mean, you can just Google, you know, how do I get through this door in Bioshock? And you can find an answer in two seconds. Sure. But then there's the aspect of looking in a strategy guide where you can read, like I was just before we went on the air reading little biographies of the characters, kind of refresh myself on the story. I'm going to use it when we talk about weapons and items and everything. So what are your thoughts on this? And this doesn't mean that strategy guides are dead forever. It doesn't mean some other company couldn't rise up out of that and put strategy guides in print that GameStop would sell. In fact, I would say that will probably happen because there will always be a niche market for these kinds of things. But for me, I'll just say I think it's a little sad, but it also felt like so inevitable. And when the news came up, it was like, oh, wow, like that took a long time. You know, yeah. like that took way longer <laughs> yeah. than I thought it would for that kind of industry to collapse in that way. So what do you think about that? You know, I've, I've never been the type of gamer that ever bought or used strategy guides. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know. I guess it was the price point. You know, I, I just really never had a lot of funds, you know, other than being able just to buy the games. Um, and so gaming was always more of a communal thing for me. Like uh, I would be playing a game at the same time as a neighbor or friends at school. And we would just sort of work our way through games. You know, this is, of course, pre-internet. Now, you know, things like Nintendo Power and stuff like that that are also out of print, you know, I definitely see the value in collecting those things as well as collecting strategy guys, too, because, as you said, it's a uh, very lost art. But, yeah, it's not something that I've ever had or used. I've picked them up every once in a while. I think I have one for the first and second Diablo on PC that I just found at a Goodwill or something for a quarter. And I was like, oh, I'll just pick it up just to sort of flip through it and, you know, check it out. But, uh, yeah, I've just never been a um, collector of strategy guides. However, um, as many people that listen to the show know, I'm one of the directors at RF Generation. And one of the always hot-button items that we have to deal with as directors is deciding whether to put strategy guides into our database. We have a lot of collectors who collect video games and such who would like us to put it in there, but we've always sort of avoided it because it's not actually, I don't want to say it's not gaming media because it is gaming media, but it's not actual video games and there's always how much space will we have, you know, in the future as far as storage. But, uh, We've never put in arcade cabs, you know, for, you know, similar reasons. And we've never done that with uh, video gaming magazines, which, you know, who knows, that might change in the future. So uh, it's an interesting topic to kind of kick around every once in a while for us. Yeah. And with the guides, as far as logging them on the site, you would also have to deal with the quote unquote official guides, which are licensed <laughs> right. by the publisher of the game and the unofficial guides, which can sometimes even be better or more interesting than the official guide. So absolutely, that's another thing that's kind of out there on them. Uh, fun fact, I now have two friends who work at GameStop, but my one friend once brought me a stack of strategy guides that were being basically like decommissioned and thrown out by GameStop because they weren't being sold. And uh, this Bioshock guide that I'm using was one of them. Again, like, unless it's a game that I have zero, like absolute zero interest, I just think they're cool, you know? Yeah. 
And um, some of the, the coolest ones I have is like special edition ones. Like I have this really cool Fallout 3 game of the year hardcover and a Fallout New Vegas hardcover that kind of go together really nicely. So uh, I'm pouring a shot out. It's almost like payphones, though. Like you knew it was inevitable, <laughs> man. <Yeah>. Like <laughs> something that is overall better in a way has come along and is more accessible and free is another thing about it. You know, it doesn't cost you money to go on game facts and look up a walkthrough. So, yeah, but the same way you feel about those strategy guides is probably the same way I feel about like Nintendo powers, like picking those up and just kind of thumbing through them. It's just an awesome feeling, you know, whether you're using it specifically or not. Sure. It's just that nostalgia factor, maybe seeing a game that was advertised that maybe was never released or a little cartoon or a little blurb about something or a hint that you forgot about, you know, for a game, a secret area or something like that. It's just really neat. Cool. Cool. All right. Do you have any other, any news items you can think of or you want to move on into pickups? Oh man, I think that's it. Let's go ahead and roll on into pickups. Cool. So I actually have a bunch this week or this Whoa. month. Can you believe that? No, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I went on a tear, man. Uh, I picked up a bunch of Xbox One games just cheap on eBay because I had just been playing it a lot and I wanted more games for it. And the games tend to be cheaper on Xbox One than they are on PS4 for the same game. So mm-hmm. it's, it's sometimes better to just pick them up there. And also, I got Tom Clancy's The Division, which I haven't played yet, and Town of Light, which I started playing. It seems cool, kind of a exploration, quote-unquote, walking simulator type of adventure game. I fired it up and played like the first area and couldn't figure out what to do. So I got frustrated right away, so I just turned it off and said, let's just put this one on the shelf and let it cool off a little, and I'll try it again. <laughs> and maybe... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Look at one of those aforementioned uh, FAQs to see what the first thing you need to do in the game is. (laughs) But it seems neat. It seems like the kind of game that I would like, like just a contemplative, relaxing, kind of walking around type of game. I do like those kind of things. I also got Watch Dogs 2, which I'll talk about more in the What Are You Playing? So those are just three games that I picked up cheap on eBay. Then I took some stuff that I was going to sell or trade or whatever, and I gave it to one of my buddies who works at GameStop, like I was saying, and had him trade in, and I gave him a little list because they were doing Black Friday, Cyber Monday type of sales. And I ended up picking up Has Been Heroes for the Nintendo Switch, which was a GameStop-exclusive physical game which looks like a very unique, weird strategy. Not a strategy RPG, like a grid-based strategy RPG. It looks like almost like a mobile... I think it was a mobile game, and it has like these cool-down kind of effects, and you're moving your characters around and attacking. And that was actually $4.99, and my friend was able to find me a sealed copy of it for that price, even though that was the pre-owned price. So that was pretty cool. And then I got also God Wars Future Past for the PlayStation 4. That's a strategy RPG that is a grid-based strategy RPG. And looking at the reviews of it, people said it had a very old-school feel. It plays like Fire Emblem. It plays like Final Fantasy Tactics. So I was like, right on. Like, I'll definitely get that. Also very cheap, $6.99 at GameStop. And the last game I got from GameStop is called Outcast Second Contact. 
And I am not familiar with this game, but Outcast was apparently a PC game from the 90s, which was like a action adventure kind of exploration sci-fi game. And again, it was so cheap that all I had to do was watch one review that was even tepidly, you know, recommending it. (laughs) And it's like, all right, I'll just get that. So I got that for the PS4. But my best score of all this month by far, and I alluded to this last month when we were talking about Limited Run, is something I pre-ordered from them months ago and it finally was produced and sent to me and I'm so happy about it, is Oxenfree for the Switch. Ah, yes. And as we know, that's one of my favorite games that we've ever played for the playthrough and... They had previously printed this game for the Vita, right, Rich? That's what, Or do you have it for the PS4? I have it for PS4. Yeah. yeah, so they printed it definitely for the PS4. I think they also did the Vita, but either way, I never had a physical copy of it, and I definitely wanted one. This is a case where I can say, like, one of the reasons I'm not so afraid of the digital future is that when there's a game like this and a physical copy is available, if I play it digitally and I love it I want it physically so I can have it kind of forever quote unquote (laughs) so I was thrilled when they announced that they were printing Oxenfree for the Switch and I pre-ordered it right away and I finally got it it looks beautiful it has this like reflective foil cover and uh, it's just really awesome to own a physical copy of that game awesome man yeah that's a great pickup I'm really happy that I had picked a copy up on PS4 for myself. And uh, when I saw that Switch release, I was like, yep, I'm sure Sean's going to be picking that one up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's it for me, man. What about you as far as pickups? Yeah, man, I've had another good month of pickups. I've um, really been focusing on my uh, Atari 2600 variants as of late, as you know. I was able to find a copy of Flag Capture with the picture label. Picked that up on eBay. I snagged it for like 13 bucks. This is a game that typically goes for over 30 and someone had just put it up, buy it now. So I was like, okay, I will. And then I picked up a copy of Time Warp. Uh, this is by the company CCE. It's a Brazilian company, which I've written about before on the site. This is a game that was never released in the United States. A company called Zellers actually released it in Canada. And as I mentioned before, uh, Brazilian games are actually North American uh, based, so you can actually play those on um, the North American 2600 system. And so I will pick up games down there that are either very expensive, if they were published in the U.S., such as a game called Condor Attack. I have the Brazilian version of that game. And then also there are several games that were released down there that were actually released in Europe, but they never made it to North America. And so I can play them on my North American system. This game, Time Warp, is one of those, and I picked it up. Uh, Really happy to have that. I also picked up some 2600 variants. I've really been into the Sears picture label variants because a lot of the Sears telegames labels were different from the Atari labels that had like different watercolor artwork on them, which I'm just so into that artwork. I picked up a copy of Poker Plus, which is a difficult game to find, and a copy of Warlords, the picture Sears telegame versions. The copy of Poker Plus had some red marker on it, but I was able to get it for $250. This is a game that can go up to like $40. 
And I contacted uh, one of my buddies on Twitter, this guy named Atari Spot, who is very knowledgeable, huge Atari collector. He's actually hooked me up with a lot of these variants in the past. And he told me to use the method with the dry erase markers, you know what I'm talking about, and just yeah. write over it. And that cleaned it right up, man. Awesome. Uh, so now it has like a perfect label on it. And it was already a, a nice label to begin with. But uh, a lot of the Atari labels you can't do that with because they're very papery. But some of them, especially these telegames labels, uh, have a little bit of a wax coating on the top. And you can get away with that. You just want to rub very gently as you're rubbing it off. Because if you rub too hard, you can actually rub the label off. So, uh, you know, keep that in mind, collectors, if you're wanting to uh, clean up your games. Uh, that's definitely a method you can try. I also picked up some games from Limited Run, man. It's kind of that season where uh, I've bought all these games from Limited Run and forgotten about them, and then I'll get like an indication they're coming in the mail, uh, which yeah. is awesome. I picked up a game called Hue for my Vita. This is a platformer where uh, you basically throw colors at different areas to make like different places to platform, and you have this like kind of color wheel that you use in the game. I also picked up a copy of Thumper for PS4, uh, which is actually VR. But you can play it VR or non-VR on this disc. And uh, this is one of those games that everyone was talking about. Man, I really, really hope someone releases this game for VR. It would be so cool. Well, they did. And uh, Limited Run put it out on PS4. And I was able to grab a copy of that. Um, I also grabbed a copy of uh, SteamWorld Collection uh, locally for PS4. Well, this is a game that Limited Run actually put out both of the uh, SteamWorld games on Vita, but it was actually released as a collection on PS4. These were originally indie games. One is an RPG. The other one is more of a roguelike digging game. Gamefly had a sale, of course, and I picked up a copy of Owlboy for PS4 and a copy of Rad Rogers 4 as well, which looks like a really cool action platformer shooter type game. But my biggest pickup in the last month... My buddy Cameron, who's actually been on the show, he's been kind of slowly selling away a lot of his collection, and he always hits me up first. And uh, he sold me a copy of Evo for uh, the Super Nintendo, so I picked that up at a very, very good price. Awesome. Yeah, that's a, what you would call a hidden gem, right? That's uh, <laughs> yes. also very uh, collectible and expensive at this point in time, so that's yeah. that's an awesome score. Yeah, he did me right, so awesome. I was very happy. Very cool. Well, let's roll right along into what are you playing? I'll kick it to you first. You got anything good? Yeah, man. Um, as far as what are you playing, I know we always talk about console games, but I wanted to talk about arcade cabs for a minute, if that's okay. Of course. Um, there's a local place. There's a guy, his name's Scott Leftwich. He owns a place called Wieners and Losers. <laughs> and yeah, it's a great name. Yeah. Uh, and basically, he's an arcade cab collector. All of his collection is from the earliest to 1984. It's very specific. And what he has decided to do is to make his machines open to the public. He owns a big, kind of like an old apartment complex almost with a very huge basement in it. He's got over a hundred arcade cabs in this basement. Six or seven of them, they only made like 10 of ever. He usually does it on Saturdays, sometimes Saturdays and Sundays, a few times a month. It's a three-hour window that you get to play arcade games in for 10 bucks. What he does with the money is he turns it around and he just fixes up and buys new arcade machines for people to come and enjoy. 
It's a really good thing. He's got a grill in there. You can buy hot dogs. You can buy food. He's got a jukebox. He's got all this 80s nostalgia video game stuff. Even the bathroom has like orange. You remember the uh, toilet seat covers that would go over them, the big furry ones? It even has that <laughs> stuff in there. So it's like stepping into an 80s arcade. It's wonderful. Typically, he only allows kids that are 12 and over to go. And so I was like, oh, man, I really want my kids to experience this. My kids are well-behaved. They've been around arcade machines their entire life, of course, and pinball machines. And so I sent him a message, and I asked him. He said, if you think your kids are going to be fine, he said, I trust you, and it's fine. Go ahead and bring them. And, of course, they did well. They were awesome. But, um, yeah, man, I got to play some really, really awesome and rare games, and most of the ones you think about from the 80s. But uh, I got to play a really, really rare game called Spiders, uh, which I just fell in love with. They have a uh, computer screen, and it has everyone's high score on it. And so if you get a high score, you get your name up there, plus you get a free hot dog. So, uh, yeah, I put the high score on Spiders, and uh, really awesome experience. Just want to thank, you know, Scott for letting me bring my kids and kind of share that with them. And uh, I plan on going there a lot in the future. It's a really neat place. If you're ever in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, or live around that area, be sure to check out Wieners and Losers. You will not regret it. It's a fantastic experience. The other thing that I've been playing this month was actually one of my pickups. I didn't mention it before, but I told you I'd been getting things from Limited Run Games I'd forgotten I'd ordered. Well, this is one I had not forgotten I had ordered. This is one I had been anticipating for a long time, and that is a physical copy of Salt and Sanctuary. This is basically a slash em up platforming game that has elements of Dark Souls in it. Uh, so a lot of oh, the... Oh, hey uh, guys, this is Chris from the Collector cast. Did somebody <laughs> say Dark Souls? Hey, Chris, what are you doing in here, man? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the uh, magic words, you know? Right, right. He's like, he's like a damn genie when you <laughs> say that word. <laughs> oh, but uh, yeah, anyway, it has um, elements of the game whose name will not be repeated in it. <laughs> It's a lot of fun, man. Um, if it was Dark Souls-esque, I probably wouldn't like it. But since it's got like so many platforming and so many hacking elements to it, I really like it. Uh, it has a really neat leveling up system and skill tree. You get to design your own characters. I'm playing as a female Sean, just for you. Excellent. <laughs> and uh, it's got some really cool elements. The bosses and the artwork, they're fantastic. Lots of strategy. Yeah, so far I'm enjoying it quite a lot. I've put several hours into it already. It's a game that I would definitely recommend. It's downloadable, of course, but if you can find yourself a limited runs copy and want to grab that, you should definitely do it. How is the overall difficulty on it, being that it's that kind of game? You know, it's not bad, and I will tell you why. You can get to spots to where you're not doing very well, uh, and you can say, okay, well, I can't beat this shit. Well, you can actually grind and level up. You collect salt and you take it to the sanctuary and the amount of salt you have allows you to level up. Well, grinding in this game isn't bad at all. It doesn't take that long to level up and to keep leveling up. So if you can't beat something, then you can just keep leveling up until you can get to that point. Now, if you get killed at any point, all the salt that you have. But if you can make it back and kill the monster that 
killed you, then you can regain all that salt back and then you can go level up. So it's kind of this teeter-totter of collecting enough salt, going to the sanctuary, turning it in and leveling up, and, you know, just kind of continually going back and saving and grinding a little bit more, which I find quite relaxing and enjoyable. I think it could be annoying for some people, but... As you level up, you're able to fill out more areas of your skill tree and get more powerful, you know, gain more stamina, gain more strength, take more damage. You know, it has some like really neat abilities like rolls and blocking uh, that you can use to figure out how to fight these bosses. So really, if you just kind of take your time with it and, you know, just level up, you know, you can make it through the game. You just have to put the effort in, you know. Cool. That sounds awesome. I'll definitely yeah. have to take a closer look at that one. I've heard of it, obviously, from you guys and... uh Sounds sounds really good. Yeah, I think it's something for you that you would enjoy more than you might think you would, you know, because it gets that Dark Souls stigma label attached to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe hurtful for some people thinking that it's extremely difficult where I don't see it that way at all. Awesome. All right. Is that it for you? That's it, man. What you been playing? I should just say that I'm still working on Jean Dark, but I've kind of fallen into this routine with that game where because the game has free battles you know i'm not like super into the game right now so i'm not playing it every single day and what i'll do is i'll fire it up and i'll say oh i haven't played this game in like three days let me just do a free battle to get myself back into it and then i'll do just that and sure i'll level up a little so it's beneficial but then it's like okay i'm good for now you know what i mean and then like yeah. once a week or every other week i'll do a story mission and even though I'm leveled up, the game is, it's not super hard at all, but it's challenging enough that when you do a story mission, they throw stuff at you that for me playing it, I'm like, by the end of it, oh, I just barely made that by the skin in my teeth. Better go and grind in the free battles for another couple of weeks. You know what I mean? <laughs> so my progression has slowed to an almost halt. But the game is so good that it's not deterring me from playing it. I'm like committed to finishing it and I don't care if it takes me six months to finish it. I definitely will because I've already invested uh, over 15 hours into it and looking at a walkthrough, I'm about halfway through the game, I think. So I want to keep going with it and I still highly, highly, highly recommend it to anybody who likes the PSP, strategy games, or anime magical girl interpretations of the Joan of Arc <laughs> uh, historical story. So You know, when you said you had 15 hours into this game, somebody just like thumbed their nose at you like, oh, well, I've got 125 hours yeah. into Fallout so-and-so. Maybe. I <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of people, including myself, I have to pick and choose these super long games very carefully, you know, and uh, yeah, I've put hundreds of hours into games just like Fallout and many others. So this is one that it's on how long to beat at like 30 hours and that's a general mm -hmm. consensus. But when you're doing the free battles over and over and over again to grind, I'm sure it's more than that. Uh, like I said, I feel like I'm halfway through it. But anyway... I'm also playing Watch Dogs 2 on the Xbox One, and I had a weird experience with this game because I liked Watch Dogs 1, and I heard that Watch Dogs 2 was like way better than that. So I picked up a copy off of eBay, as I was saying earlier, 
And I started playing it on my Xbox One, which is in a room with the projector that I've written about on the blog. I've talked about it before. I just, I have a cheapy projector that I just project onto the wall and I play games like that and it's awesome. And I have a, like a poor man's surround sound in there. It's just a stereo amplifier with a couple of speakers, but it's just great for playing games and watching movies. However, when you're playing a game that's like such a high fidelity HD game with a lot of small icons and small print on the screen, the $80 cheapy projector that I bought doesn't really accommodate the kind of things that you need to see on the screen in a way that it makes the game almost unenjoyable and hard to play. So I was actually playing the game and was having a hard time with it and stopped playing it for about two weeks. And what happened was my wife and I went on a mini vacation over the Thanksgiving holiday. We went back to Magnolia Beach, Texas, which is where we went for the 4th of July for our anniversary, which I talked about on a previous episode. We actually went back to the same place. This guy on Airbnb owns three houses in his little complex on the beach. So we rented a different one of his houses, and I had a feeling... Uh, this is kind of silly, but this is how nerdy and uh, pr- like pre-planning I am. When he gave us the Wi-Fi and the Wi-Fi password, it was the same one as previously. And I deduced that he only had one modem for the entire complex. And it was in the first house that we had rented. So I said, man, the Wi-Fi is going to suck at this other house because <laughs> the modem's in the, in the, the different house. So we actually brought the Xbox One and we went to the library and rented a bunch of DVDs because we thought that streaming would be a challenge. So anyway, having my Xbox One on this little mini trip, I also brought Watch Dogs too because I figured I was already screwing around in this game. I might as well, you know, maybe try to get back into it. And long story short, just playing it on a TV, I got right back into it. The graphics are great. Being able to read everything that's on the screen, see all the icons, you know, read the map, got me right back into the game. So much so that when we came home, I actually put the Xbox One in my living room on my TV. So rearranged our console situation here because of that. (laughs) Uh, So... For anybody who doesn't know anything about the Watch Dogs franchise, the main gameplay hook is that it's basically a sandbox GTA type of game where you're running around a city. In this case, it's San Francisco. And you can jack cars and run people over and you do missions and you get uh, side missions from people. There's collectibles and all that great stuff that is attractive about sandbox action games. But there's a hacking component to it where you have a phone, you know, like a smartphone, And you can hack things in the world. You can profile the NPCs. You can digitally steal money from them. You can sick the police on them. And you can do all these really cool things using your phone. You can take control of cars on the street and make them crash into each other. You can change the traffic lights. There's all these cool little things you could do. So for someone like me who plays these sandbox games and as much as I love doing the missions... 
there are those times when you're playing these games where you just evolve into causing as much mayhem as you can and getting your wanted (laughs) level as high as you can and seeing how long you can survive kind of thing. And this really, really scratches that itch because there's very creative ways that you can create mayhem and havoc. Now, Rich, have we talked about this before? I think you've mentioned that you're not a fan of like kind of sandbox open world games. Is that right? Or am I thinking of somebody else? No, that's true. It's not that I mind the large worlds that are created. It's just that I don't like to invest lots of time in games. I like to play a variety of games. I'm kind of the person that doesn't like to play more than one game at a time, like, you know, I do with reading books and such. So I just don't like investing that much time into a game. So it's not that I'm against open world games, but just that I don't feel like I would really enjoy them as much because... I would have to invest so much of my time into them. And besides, I was a World of Warcraft addict, so that was a pretty open-world <laughs> experience that uh, took up a lot of my life and created some problems for me and my family. So, Yeah, I get that. I think the distinction there, though, is that World of Warcraft is not only open-world, but it's open-ended in its yes. narrative structure. So sure. the difference would be that Like Watch Dogs 1, I think I beat it in like 15 hours. And Watch Dogs 2 will take me much longer because I'm taking part in a lot more of these side activities. But in Watch Dogs 1, I just kind of ran straight through the main story. I'm not trying to change your mind or anything, but you can take one of these games and just kind of say, okay, I won't get distracted by little side stories or anything and just go through the main missions and you might get some enjoyment out of it. Cool. And then lastly, as far as my, what are you playing? I'm so super happy about this, but I finally got my wife to pick up the sticks again. And I've talked about she and I playing games in the past, but it's just been quite a while since we found one that we both liked that we could just sit down and play together on a console. We've talked about this on the show before. She's more of a mobile gamer, and of course, I'm a console gamer, and sometimes it's hard to make those two things meet or to find something that we both want to play together. But there's a game on the Xbox One. It's on all the other platforms as well. It's called Victor Vran, and it is a Diablo-esque dungeon-crawling hack-and-slash loot game. Uh, It's very much like Diablo or Diablo 3 specifically, the the more modern type of this kind of game. It's just mindless fun running around the maps doing these little story missions and hacking and slashing and, and then configuring your character and changing the weapons and leveling up and picking your attributes, all that RPG stuff, and then, you know, looting constantly. I really like it because there's a this kind of cheapy element of humor to it that they tried to do in Sacred 3, which is a game I played and I've, I talked about. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I liked that game a lot, but a lot of people hated it because it had this sense of humor that really could rub people the wrong way. People didn't like it for other reasons too, but that was a big one. With Victor Vran, the sense of humor comes through in the like really overdone voice acting. And it also comes through in some of the costumes that you have. Like 
so it's set in like a Victorian era kind of horror, you know, just like Diablo basically. But one of the costumes you could have looks like a Power Ranger. Like it's this like sci-fi <laughs> armor. And then like when you go to your character screen, it's just funny. Like there's just this campy element to it that is actually done well. So I can recommend this to anybody who likes these kind of games. If you like Diablo style top-down dungeon crawler hack and slash RPGs. Victor Vran is a really cool one and it's great for couch co-op. And uh, like I said, I'm so stoked to just be playing a game with my wife again. It's awesome. Yeah, man. I'm going to have to check that out, see if it's something that my wife might enjoy. She's never really tried any hack and slash games, but I feel like if it's something that we could maybe do together, you know, she might enjoy that. Yeah, I think these kind of games are really the wheelhouse for me and my wife. We played the first Baldur's Gate game that's on the PlayStation 2 a while back. We didn't finish it, but we were having a really good time with it. But we also have played many of the Lego games together. And I think the key to getting my wife to just sit down and play a game with me is that we can run around on the same screen together, accomplishing things together and we can guide each other. And I'm always, it's not always me, but I'm usually like, all right, come on, we're going this way. You know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. um, that's just the best, like kind of couch co-op stuff for us. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to mention something really quick, just about that place that you rented down in Texas at the beach. Sure. I just didn't want things to be awkward for us, but you probably recognize that I actually own that condo because of the horrible Wi-Fi. <laughs> in it. So sorry about that, man. I'll try to get that upgraded soon. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I really almost wanted to tell him, like, you know, this doesn't really work. Like, <laughs> <laughs> in the modern age, this uh, this isn't going to help you uh, sell these places. Exactly. Uh,
All right, so our game this month is one of my favorite games of all time. It's Bioshock. And once again, Rich, we're playing a first-person shooter. And I think you're going to have to retire your I don't like first-person shooters card. What do you think? Wait a minute. Did I say I like this game yet? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you finished it. So I guess we'll we'll get to that when we get to final thoughts. Uh, So let's save that. But uh, this is one of my favorite games, and there's a little bit of background that we're going to have to go over before we get into the game itself. But before that, let's do our question of the month, and you came up with a good one. The problem is we didn't get too many responses. In fact, we didn't get any on social media nor on the forums, and I think that's partly my fault. I didn't put it out soon enough. It wasn't simmering enough for people to think about it, so... Uh, I retweeted it. I, I don't know. Maybe the word dystopian, maybe fewer people knew what that term actually meant. So, you know, maybe that's kind of uh, on me for that one. It could be that, but it's weird. You know, the question responses are so unpredictable. I would have never thought that who is your favorite Batman villain would be far and away our biggest <laughs> one. Uh, I like, People have opinions on that. That's now. true. That's true. <laughs> but I like the ones that are a little bit more cerebral like this one. I have my own response, but I do have one response from friend of the show, Corey, who designed our logo, as I've mentioned many, many times, great friend of mine and friend of the show. And I'm happy to announce that Corey has created an account on rfgeneration.com. Oh, all right. Congratulations, Corey. Welcome to the site. Hell yeah. So he should be joining us for playthroughs in the future and... My goal is to get him on the podcast in the future because I, I feel like I talk about him every month. So as long as he earns it with some good participation, I'm hoping we can get him on the show eventually. Right on. Uh, so the question was, what is your favorite dystopia? And you said film or book, but I expanded it when I tweeted it to any form of media. Yeah. So what he said was... One of my favorite dystopias comes from the book trilogy, The Hunger Games. I particularly enjoy this specific dystopia because as the story unfolds, you have this militant facet who commits acts of rebellion against the capital, Pan M, that always keeps the reader on the edge of their seat. I have read all the books and seen all the films of The Hunger Games. I'm a big fan. That's probably the preeminent young adult dystopian fiction out there. There were many imitators at the time. This is probably in the the late aughties, you know, 2000, you know, <laughs> six, seven, eight, whenever they started coming out. But we got to mention that Hunger Games is a bit of an imitator, too. Sure, sure. Now, the author Battle claims, Royale, right? Yeah, the author claims it wasn't directly ripped off from Battle Royale, but... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a direct ripoff. There's enough differentiation between the two, but the premise is very similar. Yes. You know, the, the main premise, yes. And... By the way, Battle Royale is a sick book and an awesome movie, (laughs) so I would highly recommend those. Absolutely. Yeah, I've read the Hunger Games books as well. Um, I was kind of on the fence, but my wife read them, said, yeah, you should check these out. You'll probably like them, and so I did. I have not seen all the movies yet, surprisingly, and my kids have actually mentioned watching those films. My daughter mentioned the other day, she's like, what is this Hunger Games stuff? Is that something that I could watch? She's 10. I'm kind of like, I I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Cool. So what's yours, Rich? 
you know, in order to comment on dystopian books, you really have to be a reader of sci-fi, you know, because that's where the meat of this dystopian ideology comes from. And I'm not a big sci-fi reader, but my favorite dystopian book has always been Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. That's one that I read in high school, which was a part of my senior AP English reading. And I really, really enjoyed that book a lot. I think it's a lot more accessible than 1984. The writing in that by Orwell is a little stagnant and hard to get through sometimes. The font's very small in most of the uh, prints of that book, so it makes it tough to read. But I, I just like Brave New World much better. As far as films are concerned, I don't know, would you consider RoboCop a dystopian film? I think it is in somewhat of a sense, right? Oh, yeah. I think there's absolute elements of dystopia in the Detroit of RoboCop. Uh, yeah. The, the crime rate is astronomical. It's kind of a cyberpunk thing, which always goes hand in hand with dystopia, yeah. like you were saying, uh, as a science fiction subgenre. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, creating this sort of perfect uh, society of law enforcement, yet there's underhandedness where the um, people at the top and the criminals are working together. Uh, so, yeah, that would be my favorite movie. Of course, that's my favorite movie of all time, so I wanted to pick something else. So I went with Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is a film that I really, really love. And I think that's a very sort of dystopian universe where you've taken criminals and put them into this game show environment. Environment. And uh, a lot of people don't know this, but The Running Man was actually written by Stephen King, which is yeah. surprising. You know, you don't think of King as being really a sci-fi writer. But yeah, he actually did that book. So uh, that would be my choice. Plus, man, you got to love Richard Dawson. What a great guy, you know. Believe it or not, I've never seen The Running Man. And uh, oh, I know man. what it is. Remedy you know, I know that. It was Stephen King, but I've never seen the movie <laughs> or read it. And uh, I don't know who Richard Dawson is, so... He was the original host of Family Feud, if you remember him, oh, the gray-headed okay. guy. Okay. He was yep. in Hogan's Heroes, that old show as well. So, yep. uh, okay, gotcha. He plays the uh, the host of the game show, actually, that Arnold Schwarzenegger's on, and he's fantastic, man. Cool. Well, I will put it on my list. There's a bunch of, actually, kind of older Schwarzenegger movies that I haven't seen that I want to. I won't name them because I don't want to be shamed or browbeaten into, uh, <laughs> you know, those kind of things. But, yeah, I know. So, I'm a huge fan of dystopias. I think they can kind of reflect the fears of actual dystopias that we've seen or that we might see in the real world. Um, if you think about the Soviet Union or communist China or even going further back, like the Black Plague or the Dark Ages, um, we've had, unfortunately, dystopias in real life. And I love 1984. I actually have the reverse opinion from you, Rich. Hmm, okay. Brave New World was hard for me to read. I've talked about this on the show before. The language and prose that Huxley uses in that novel, I just found to be like too flowery and poetic that it almost became hard to follow for me. Whereas with 1984, it, it is a little bit more journalistic and the tone is more of a realist kind of minimalist tone, which I tend to find easier to read. So having said that, though, I've heard it spoken about that 
in today's day and age, Huxley's uh, Brave New World is actually probably more likely to happen in America. Like some of the things he was writing about, like all the people are on Soma, which is this like calming drug that just right. kind of puts you in a dopey trance and helps you get through your day. And the way that sex has kind of been desexualized so that everything is sexual in a way that nothing is sexual. It's it's hard to explain. You'd have to read the book. But yeah. uh, there's just a lot of things where, as far as 1984, it was a fictional version of a totalitarian government based on the Soviet Union. But Huxley was taking little elements from everyday life and kind of taking them to their conclusions rather than it just being the terror of a totalitarian regime. So those two books, two of the all-time dystopias ever in literature. But I'll cut to the chase here. My dystopia of choice is Neo-Tokyo from Akira, or Akira, however you want to say it. So Neo-Tokyo is the setting for the manga and the anime film, which is perhaps the all-time greatest anime film ever. Uh, and I haven't read them. Never seen it, so browbeat that. Oh, wow. Yes, I am going to yep. browbeat you for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need to please watch this movie. Um, Picked it up and put it down several times in the oh, my used man. media store. Yeah. I think you would love it. It's definitely stronger in the first half than the second half, and there's reasons for that. The manga was very long, so the adaptation of the movie was a challenge, to say the least, and there's a lot of history and background that you can go into with that. However, the movie is still just a 1,000% worth watching. And one of the things I love about Neo-Tokyo and about Akira in general is just that it's a dystopian vision of the future that was created in the real world in the 1980s. And there's something special to me, and maybe it's because I was born in the 80s and was a child, that seeing a sci-fi vision of the future from the 80s just has a special nostalgic feel to me. It's, Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to explain or to put into words, but I feel the same way when I read The Dark Knight Returns, which is my favorite graphic novel of all time, the Batman Frank Miller book. Which I now have a copy of. Yeah, so yeah, I'll reread that and you can read it and maybe we'll talk about it. And then you can see Akira and we can talk about that too. But anyway, Neo Tokyo is set in the ruins of Tokyo. Tokyo was destroyed in uh, i believe it was supposed to have been nuked and this is was the start of world war three so they actually built an artificial city in tokyo bay which becomes neo tokyo and it's just this super overgrown sprawling island and it's cyberpunk and it's neon and it's just super cool and it just like robocop there's just the crime and the class warfare and all the great trappings of a dystopia they're all there i won't go on too much about it like that's definitely my favorite dystopia awesome that was a good question rich and the reason we chose that question is because bioshock is set in a dystopia and we will get to that when we get into the game itself but we have to discuss and we will do this briefly Right. (laughs) And actually, I'm going to read something because I was racking my brain. How do I 
present this and I cannot. So um, <laughs> the game is based, and I'm going to argue loosely based on Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand was an author and playwright in the 20th century. She was born in, I believe, 1903, the early 1900s yes. in Russia, when it was Russia, obviously. She lived through the Soviet Revolution of 1917 and had to flee the USSR to come to America. Her father was, I believe, a pharmacist, and his pharmacy was seized by the Soviets. It was just, you know, not a good situation. And she got out of there and came to America for a better life. She was a playwright. And like I said, an, an author, and she ended up writing four novels that were published. A fifth one was published recently, but it was not something that she ever wanted published. So it's, you can take it or leave it as, you know, just a artifact. That's the novel version of Ideal, which came out in 2015. I read it. It's definitely not essential, but her other four novels are We the Living, Anthem, The Fountainhead, and Atlas Shrugged. I will just really quickly read from an essay called Introducing Objectivism, which is Ayn Rand's basic philosophy, which was printed in the Los Angeles Times on June 17, 1962. And I'm just going to read. We don't do this on the show very often. You know, I pick and choose carefully when I'm just going to read something other than people's quotes on the message board. So here we go. At a sales conference at Random House preceding the publication of Atlas Shrugged, one of the book salesmen asked me whether I could present the essence of my philosophy while standing on one foot. I did as follows. Number one, metaphysics, objective reality. Number two, epistemology, reason. Number three, ethics, self-interest. Number four, politics, capitalism. So just real quick, and this is Sean talking again. So these are the four like kind of branches of philosophy. Metaphysics is just what is real, what exists. So she right. says objective reality. So to put it another way, reality is real, uh, existence exists. Right. If you can perceive it with your senses, then that is what is real is basically what she's saying. The idea that if you can't prove that it exists, it doesn't exist. Right. Exactly. And then for two epistemology, that's just basically what is knowledge and how do we acquire it? So it's kind of related to number one. She's saying we use reason. We reason our way to knowledge. Yes. And then for three ethics, the philosophy is self-interest, which is in direct conflict very purposefully against the ethics of altruism, which is yes. uh, typically a, a religious idea that you sacrifice yourself for your fellow man, that you are your brother's keeper. She was absolutely strongly against that. And she said a man's rational self-interest, and she called it selfishness, was the only ethical and moral position to take. Right. And this idea of selfishness is not selfishness in the way that we perceive it as being stingy and taking away from others. It's more of a selfishness as far as believing in yourself, looking out for your specific interest, and doing what you want to do in life and focusing on that particular goal. 
that's where she's coming from. So there, there is a difference in the way she defines selfishness. It's, it's sort of the way you look at the word ignorant, right? You can say something is ignorant or you can call someone ignorant. That word has two different meanings. That's a great way to put it. And number four is politics. And her view on politics was capitalism or laissez-faire capitalism, or she would say unfettered, unregulated capitalism. So we all know capitalism is just the free exchange of money and goods without any kind of regulations or taxes. And the way to obtain resources is through voluntary exchange. You have a hamburger, I have a dollar. You want my dollar, I want your hamburger. We agree with no third parties involved to exchange those two things. And you scale that up to companies and, you know, mass-produced products and everything else. And that's capitalism in a nutshell. Yeah, and she was very much attacked for that latter perception because people think if you allow this to happen, then there's going to be these huge monopolies. Her argument is that these monopolies will not exist because there will always be competition and someone to take away from someone who is producing a specific thing that people need. There will always be people all over. And so things such as gas prices and things like that, she thought there would be competition, you know, globally that would keep people from, you know, basically creating these uh, industrial monopolies. That's right. And I actually had more to read, but you pretty much helped me there kind of explain everything. I think, you know, I could go further. It's a very interesting philosophy. I think anyone listening to this call should definitely look into just a few essays, at least, whether you read any of her novels or not. I'm currently working my way through The Fountainhead and enjoying it very, very much. And uh, I think one of the things that I told you, Sean, was um, before coming across a lot of her philosophies, these are things that I've always thought about and really didn't have any type of philosophy pinned down for it and didn't really know that objectivism existed. So it's been very, very interesting for me, to say the least. Yeah, that's awesome to hear from your perspective as kind of a newcomer to this. And I have to just kind of throw my hat in the ring and say that Ayn Rand, to me, is the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. Oh, she's brilliant. Uh, yeah, I think she brought back basically Aristotelian ideas of the nature of reality and, like we said, reason and the validation of the senses and the ego and using one's own mind to assess and analyze the world, and also the economic ideas of unregulated market capitalism. I have alluded in the past to my favorite authors and my favorite books, and I may have sounded soft on the subject in the past, and that is because far and away, without any question, and the second place is not even close, my favorite novel of all time is Atlas Shrugged. And like many people, the first time I read that book, it changed my life, it changed my perception of the world, it changed the way I felt about so many things. And I still can't believe to this day that a human being wrote that book. <laughs> and yeah. that is a, a just a monumental novel. So I'm just a huge fan. I, I love Ayn Rand and I love listening to her talk. And 
I would recommend if anybody wants to go on YouTube and just watch some of the old interviews that she did. Uh, maybe not the Donahue ones, but I'd recommend <laughs> ones that are older than that. Yeah. Uh, I watched one with uh, Johnny Carson that was really good. And uh, I can't remember who I watched one with, uh, but it was really good as well. Yeah, I think you said you watched one of the Tom Snyder ones. Yeah, Tom Snyder, that's it. Yeah, it's a really good one, too. She kind of lays it out and doesn't get attacked. She gets attacked a lot. And I guess what's funny about this, and I just want to tell this one story. I, I, I was reading The Fountainhead, and I, I took it out of town during Thanksgiving to a relative's house. And one of my relatives came up to me, and she said, What are you reading that for? Are you becoming a big Republican or something? And I said, Well, obviously, if you think that, you don't know anything about Ayn Rand's philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, like you said before, she is totally against altruism, which is charity, basically giving to others, helping other people out. She thinks that people should stand on their own, and it's more of a kind of survival of the fittest type of attitude where everyone is working as hard as they can on themselves to be what they want to be. But when you talk about her ideas on reason and perception and where you have to see specific things and believe in only the things that you can identify with your senses, when it comes into religion, she doesn't believe in God. That's right. So it's more of a, I would say, more of a libertarian philosophy. If I don't want to call it a libertarian philosophy, but it's more in the middle than it is on either side. So it's it's very, very interesting, and you can't categorize it politically at all. And if somebody tries to, then they, you know, they obviously don't know what they're talking about, and they obviously um, do not know what this philosophy is based on. That is true. She is one of the more misunderstood figures I've ever, you know, encountered in my life. And I just want to touch on a few things, if I can remember them as you're talking. I'm sorry. No, 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 this is good. <laughs> She definitely was not a conservative and not a libertarian. She actually strongly disliked both of those factions, you know? Um, yes. And the religious thing, it's funny because I consider myself non-religious at this point, but there was a time uh, when I was younger in my 20s that I was a really hostile, anti-religious person. I look back on those times with... A little, not, not regret, but definitely some self-criticism. Yeah. I was definitely... Same for me, man. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I was definitely kind of dealing with my own issues and projecting them onto other people and being really judgy and just kind of a <laughs> to, you know, to a lot of people about <laughs> it. What I see with Ayn Rand looking at her now is a lot less hostile than I remember about mm -hmm. religion. I watch a few interviews when she talks about it and she just says, well, I don't take things on faith. There's no reason to believe in God. There's no evidence of it. Therefore, I can't reason my way to God. I don't believe and take this on faith. That is a stark contrast to the atheism of Richard Dawkins for just one example of Religion is a poison. Religion is a mind virus. It's a delusion. People who believe it in it have a mental disability and all these other things that people say about religion. So I remember Ayn Rand being like a harsh atheist. But actually, I think, again, I might have been just projecting myself onto all the people that I was cheering on at the time. And um, 
I think what I'm trying to say is that she sometimes gets lumped in with Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and the other like more famous new atheists. And I don't think that's appropriate. Like, I don't think that's not at that's all. proper. And um, one of my favorite quotes I remember from a long time ago, actually, was one of those Tom Snyder interviews. It might have been the one you watched. I kind of hate the way he treats her in those interviews because she kind of looks like a little old lady and he like treats her like one. You know what I mean? Yeah. A little condescending. Yes, yeah. exactly. But there was one point in one of those articles, and I'll never forget this, and I've taken this with me to this day, and I still think of it strongly. He says, well, don't you love America? And she says, yes, of course. And he says, would you say, God bless America? And she says, sure, God bless America. And he says, but you're an atheist. You don't believe in God. And she says, I don't believe in this statement literally, but I agree with the sentiment wholeheartedly. And that just like blew me away at the time. I was like, yeah. oh man, like when people say God bless you or God bless America, like just roll with it, man. Like it means something, you know what I mean? Right, <laughs> so it doesn't right. mean literally I believe in God. It was actually her saying that, that kind of softened my atheistic stance at the time. So take that with a grain of salt if you're just going to shun her because she's an atheist. Yeah, way to try to set a trap, Tom Snyder. This old lady's a lot smarter than you are. Oh, <laughs> she proved it with that statement. She's brilliant. She really is. Yeah, just watching those interviews, she has a mind like a bear trap is what I've been thinking. Not a steel <laughs> yeah. trap, like the biggest steel trap, a trap that could trap a dinosaur. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So, I would never try to get into a philosophical argument with her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... I just love her. I've read so much of her stuff. I'm actually reading a book right now that I just picked up called Ayn Rand Answers. And it's a compilation of question and answer sessions that she did after a, her lecture tours after she wrote Atlas Shrugged. So it's pretty different from her essays because it's less structured. And of course, in a Q&A session, people can ask anything. So you read her talking about things that she wouldn't normally talk about. And uh, that's a really cool book. But um, I guess I'll just conclude this so we can get into the game by saying, as much as I love Ayn Rand and most, if not all, or almost all of the ideas of objectivism, I don't walk around calling myself an objectivist because it feels to me like almost too restrictive. And if you read or listen to people in Ayn Rand's circle who aren't Ayn Rand, they tend to be, and I'm being super careful here, not that, not that I'm worried any objectivists will hear this and attack us, but they, they can. <laughs> um, it's just that they seem to be pretty dogmatic about everything. And yeah. I love hearing new ideas and I love hearing things that challenge my own beliefs. Like I'm someone who I tend to believe we could survive better now in anarchistic society with no government, basically. So mm -hmm. that's where I part ways with objectivism in a major way, because Ayn Rand believe you absolutely have to have a government to protect men's rights. And when I say men's, I mean people, men and women, but she used the word men. But I believe men have to protect their own rights. So that's where I would part ways with objectivism. 
Yeah, and for me, it's more of the whole view of altruism that we were talking about. I am fairly charitable. I do care about other people. I, you know, I mean, I have children. I have to care about them and what their future may be. I have a wife, so I have to care about her and that she's happy as well. And so to be put in that strict box of selfishness, as she calls it, is a little problematic for me. But I do agree with a lot of her concepts and and what she says. And I guess the other thing that kind of bothers me is that some of her concepts today, I don't think we could ever be an objectivist society due to money. I mean, I think it's hard to (laughs) create that sort of society and go into that today based on where we're at now as a society. I think it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to create that. So that's kind of where I stand on it. Yeah. And that's one of the major problems with reform in general is trying to communicate to people things like sound money, just for an example. Actually, Ayn Rand wrote a lot about the gold standard and sound money. And she was actually buddies with Alan Greenspan before he was the Fed chairman. And ironically, he wrote a lot about sound money. And then he became the Fed chairman and just kind of threw all his principles out the window to print endless amounts of fiat currency that has no backing. So <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. And this is one of the hardest things about communicating whether it's objectivist ideas, libertarian ideas, anarchistic ideas to other people, there's that old cliche, but who would build the roads? That cliche extends to every single thing that the government does. So you can end up, if you're not even debating, but just discussing these kinds of ideas with people, it always comes to, well, who would do the schools? Who would do the mail? Who would do whatever the government does? And the challenging part is it's it's not incumbent on the libertarian or the anarchist to say, well, you know, the schools would be done by private institutions and it would be done this way. And I'm not the entrepreneur who is creating private schools that customers would want to take part in. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it becomes this kind of, I want to say a trap. That might be a harsh word because people are genuinely curious about it. But if you have to explain every single facet of life and how it would work in a free market, it can be uh, exhausting, basically. Yes. So How do you fill those voids in society right. based on free market? Yeah. Right. I mean, I'll say I've been reading about this for years and years and years, and I don't have every single answer, and we won't do it here, but I can explain, <laughs> mo- <laughs> you know. Pretty much everything, you know, as far as how would private police work, how would private schools work, how would we take care of the, you know, starving people and homeless people and everything else, even private military, how would that work? So if you really, really are intellectually curious about this, don't ask your friendly neighborhood libertarian or anarcho-capitalist to explain it to you. Go read (laughs) something, you know what I mean? Having said that... I love talking about this stuff and we're going to cut it off here and get into the game, (laughs) but this is my like passion in life. And we don't talk about politics on the show almost ever for a very specific reason. And I'm going to ask kindly, don't tweet at me. Don't bring this to Twitter. I don't want to do it. Twitter is the worst place for political conversation. 
just please don't. However, send a PM. Send me a PM on RF Generation or send me an email. My email address is ctuagentgray at gmail.com. That's my personal email. Or even a PM on Twitter at the uh, Playcast. You're the one that does that account. So uh, at RFG Playcast, you can send a private message. Again, you know, don't put anything uh, out there for public view. But if you'd like to learn more or hear Sean's ideas on it, just do that, right? Yes, please. And again, I will be as respectful as you earn and you let me be. (laughs) So I love thought experiments and all this kind of stuff. And I'm a huge fan of Ayn Rand. And if you want to talk about Rand, you want to talk about anarchy, you want to talk about libertarianism, I'm so down for it. And having said that, I hereby close any political discussion (laughs) as far as the (laughs) RF Generation playcast is concerned uh, from this point Uh, forward. Sound good, Rich? That sounds great. I'm glad that we could have a short segment on Ayn Rand and objectivism. That was wonderful. Cool, man. I hope it was useful to people. I said short, tongue-in-cheek. I knew it was going to be longer.
right, cool. Well, let's get into um, the participants who played the game. Uh, we had you and I, Crabmaster2000, Dougley007, Engineer Mike, Metal Fro, Russ Lyman, our good friend Disposed Hero, and Zofar53. Yeah, great group of guys, man. What a great discussion we had on the forums this month. Fantastic. Yeah, I got to say, this might be our most verbose thread. I didn't do a, a word count on the, the, <laughs> the whole thing. But man, some great, great commentary from everybody. And uh, I got to especially shout out Crabmaster2000 because yeah. he's played the game before and he knew he didn't like it, but he went ahead and played through it again. And as usual, just did a carefully well thought out, well backed up analysis as he was mm -hmm. playing the game. So it was cool to get that perspective. Uh, myself, I, I've already kind of spoiled it that I absolutely adore this game. So to get his perspective as somebody who doesn't adore this game and to play it again to participate here is, is very much appreciated. Yes, very much. Um, so Bioshock was developed by Irrational Games and published by 2K Games in 2007. This was actually the spiritual successor to the System Shock series. And our listeners may remember way back... We played System Shock 2 on the PC, which is one of the only PC games we've ever played or that I've ever played that I was hosting back at the time. And uh, that game I didn't like at all. I didn't finish it. And we had to get Bomba Tomba onto the podcast to help talk about the game. And uh, that was not a great experience for me. And you can go back and listen to that show or look at the forum for that game. But... Yeah, I didn't play it that month because I was on the uh, opposite side. Right. So that game and this game was directed by Ken Levine, and he's kind of the, the mastermind or the guru of Irrational Games back when they existed. He's like one of those rare figureheads of a game series in the way that Hideo Kojima is for Metal Gear or the way Todd Howard is for all the Bethesda games. Ken Levine is kind of that masthead for the Bioshock series. So, <laughs> nuts and bolts out of the way. You want to move right into the story? Yeah, sounds okay, good, cool. Man. So let's get into the story here. And the story is actually pretty simple. And Rich, you know, I always have challenges kind of <laughs> distilling a story down to just a few sentences. But basically, the game sets place in a city called Rapture. And this is where we touch on our dystopia, and this is where the question came from. So Rapture is an underwater city. Like Atlantis, if you yeah, want Yeah, kind sort. of. But it's more of a modern city, like taken out of the 1950s with skyscrapers and everything, only they're all underwater. Uh, the goal was for them to be watertight, but they're, <laughs> but they're not quite as well as we'll talk about. Um you start the game as a passenger on an airplane. The airplane crashes into the ocean and you swim to a lighthouse that takes you down to Rapture. And that's where the game begins. That's where the gameplay begins in earnest. You discover that Rapture is just really the rundown dystopian kind of setting. There are these mutants everywhere called splicers. The environment is just danger, and it's scary. 
and you are contacted by a character named Atlas who fills you in on where you are and he tells you that everything's gone to as he says and he's trying to find his family being his wife and his son and you need to help him and he'll help you get out of rapture yeah i think uh there was something on the forums about this if i recall the other first person shooter we played this year was doom and sort of the difference is as someone mentioned on the forums in doom that first scene you pick up this recorder and it's telling you what to do and you just kind of crush it you know and you're just like I'm going to do what I want to. I'm going to go out and blast people, even though you're talking to someone that's sort of guiding you and, and giving you direction. Whereas in Bioshock, you're getting more direction from Atlas and you sort of just buy into it automatically, right? Yeah. To me, I think once you're getting those radio messages and that's how most of the communication and dialogue takes place in this game is with these uh, radio transmissions that you just listen to you are taking direction from him right off the bat. And of course, that plays strongly into the story and what ends up yeah. happening at the end. So it's yeah, a very cool exactly. way that the real-life gameplay is tied into the story itself. So basically, we're going to go ahead and spoil at this point, because that's what we do. You find a bathysphere that you are told that Atlas's family is in. And Andrew Ryan, who is the creator of Rapture and the current dictator of Rapture, basically, blows up that bathysphere. And you're led to believe that Atlas's family has just been killed. And he kind of coerces you into going on a revenge mission to basically find Andrew Ryan and kill him and put an end to this whole thing. The way you do this in the game and the way the gameplay is kind of padded out, because it would only be an hour long if you just found Andrew Ryan and you win, <laughs> roll the credits, is that you have to kind of go through these characters that are Ryan's henchmen, this kind of rogues gallery of mm -hmm. artists and a mad doctor and these other people that you have to defeat and hear their stories as well. And this leads to kind of we'll get right into one of the criticisms of the game is that it's kind of fetch questy and it's kind of go here and yeah. do this. Well, to do that, you have to do this first, but then to do this, you have to do that first. And there's this kind of push and pull between progression and it's not backtracking per se, but having to do something else before you do your main goal. And uh, that's a criticism I'm, I totally agree with of this game, yeah, especially so replaying I. it you're kind of being led by the nose to do these things that can feel like padding. But eventually you make your way to Andrew Ryan. You find out that you are his illegitimate son and you were kidnapped by Frank Fontaine, who is this kind of unseen villain in the game who you find out is Atlas. So Frank Fontaine is Ryan's like mortal enemy and he was posing <laughs> yeah. as Atlas the whole time. He was controlling you via mind control using the catchphrase, would you kindly? And it was cool replaying the game knowing that because every time you hear him say it, you're like, oh, that's the trigger. Uh, I was going to ask you about that, <laughs> like playing it a second time, if that is in the dialogue. Oh, yeah. So yeah. He says it oh, so wow. many times. That's neat. It's funny that you it's put a great it that twist, way. Yes, man. because 
when you don't know it, it's very subtle. But when you know it, you realize he says it like seven times and it's like, oh, Oh, yeah, he just said it again. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's the really cool thing about replaying the game. So Ryan, in a great scene in the game, he has you beat him to death with his own golf club with the quote, a man chooses a slave obeys. So he's taking away the choice of you to murder him. He's taking it off the table. He says, you're not killing me. It's hard to explain, right, Rich? Because I don't want to use this, yeah. the word sacrifice because that's not a Randy and ideal. But he's saying, this is my choice, not yours. Just right. do it. So you're being helped throughout the whole game by a scientist named Tenenbaum, who was part of what inadvertently brought Rapture down, which is these plasmids which are the powers that you have in the game. And the plasmids have turned all the citizens of Rapture into what are called splicers. And these are the the mutant-like people that I was talking about at the beginning of the game. Compare it today to, like, cosmetic surgery. But you get these, like, supernatural abilities, you know, instead of, like, getting, like, a uh, breast enhancement (laughs) or a facelift or a nose job or something like that. Rapture citizens got the ability to have plasmids installed in them to give them these special powers. And from what I remember from the story, it came from some sea slug that they had found at the bottom of the sea. Is that correct? Right. From what I remember, the atom, which is kind of the fuel for the plasmids, comes from the sea slugs. Right. And uh, that's a lot of like. I don't want to say deep, but that's a lot of the backstory <laughs> that you don't yeah. really have to know if you're just running around doing the shooty shoot and just, I don't care. Give me the atom. Give me the plasmids. That's a little bit of backstory. I find it interesting. Yeah, I do too. I actually discovered recently by reading this strategy guide and doing a little bit more research that when you harvest versus save a little sister, you're removing the slug from her. Which uh, ah, okay. I think is more obvious if you harvest them because I, I believe the animation shows you holding the slug in your hand. So it seems like when you save them, you're more vanquishing the slug out of them. Uh, that might be, not be 100% accurate, but that's what I'm getting out of it. Um, Very interesting. So anyway, yeah, Tannenbaum was the one who kind of discovered all this stuff as far as the plasmids and the atom and... Uh, she helped with the help of Dr. Su Chong, who is another character who you don't actually see in person, but you hear <laughs> all of his audio logs. Oh, you find him at one point <laughs> in the game. Oh, yeah. He's in the apartment complex. He's splayed open that's pretty right, well. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So you yeah. don't interact with him living in person. <laughs> but right. you hear Just through audio right, and recordings. Right. But the backstory there is that he and Tenenbaum created the Little Sisters program. And the Little Sisters are these girls who have the power to kind of collect Adam from dead splicers. And they have these bodyguards called the Big Daddies, which are the kind of mini bosses in the game. And there's a certain amount of Big Daddies in every area or level. And each one is sometimes accompanied by a little sister. Yeah, if you've seen the cover of this game, you've seen what the Big Daddies look like. Right. Just giant drill arm, looks like kind of a uh, diving mask over the head, but, you know, enormous Hulk-like beans. Right. 
And we're getting a little bit into gameplay now, and it's kind of impossible not to because that's strongly tied into the story at this point. Yes. But as you encounter the big daddies and little sisters, Tenenbaum asks you to save the little sisters because she feels responsible for what she did in creating them and is trying to kind of right the wrongs that she knows she participated in. But as part of the gameplay, you're giving this binary choice to either harvest or rescue the little sisters. And in doing this, you gain Adam. And Adam is what is used to either purchase new plasmids or purchase slots for plasmids because you can only carry so many at a time. And there's also mm-hmm. sub-plasmids. There's not just the ones you use in battle, but there's ones for hacking and security and health buffs and armor buffs and all this other kind of RPG-ish stuff that you use Adam for. And the idea of the moral choice here is that if you harvest a little sister, which kills them, you get more Adam than if you save or rescue them. Again, to the concept of sacrifice, are you going to sacrifice a little bit of that Adam to make this girl human again and let her live? Or are you going to kill her and get more Adam? And we got to say this choice is big in creating which ending you get. There's basically two endings. Some people say there's a third, but two of the endings are very, very similar. But this action, depending on what you do, whether you harvest them or whether you save them, depends on which ending you get. And one is considered an actual good ending, right? That's right. So getting back to the story, once you kill Ryan, you find out what Fontaine is up to. You kind of take shelter with the little sisters and you realize you have to take on Fontaine and Tenenbaum is now leading you. So instead of Atlas talking to you and guiding through the game, for the last hour of the game, it's Tenenbaum, which is a nice change of pace. And this is one of the more fetch questy things towards the end of the game, but you have to acquire the pieces of a big daddy suit and become a big daddy to get the little sisters to guide you to where Fontaine is. Right. And this leads you to the final boss battle. And we'll talk about that later. You defeat Fontaine and then you get one of those three endings that you were just talking about. And we'll save the ending talk for later too, I guess. But that's a basic broad overview of the story and a little bit of gameplay. So I don't know if you have anything to add to what I just said before we get into the actual nitty gritty of what the gameplay is. Yeah, um, we kind of touched on it in what we were talking about, but there is a lot of dialogue that you get from picking up these voice recorders. I remember Krabby saying that he really didn't understand what was going on in the game the first time he played through it. So if you're the type of person that likes to play these first-person shooters and just kind of run through them and not collect things and take your time with the game, then you're going to miss a lot of the story. And the other thing is, if you grab a voice recorder and you get in the middle of combat, you can lose that story, uh, but you, you can go back and listen to it again. So one of the things that you suggested was to put on subtitles, which I thought is a fantastic idea, so that you can actually read it. And what I would usually do is I would clear out an area first, and then go pick up the voice recorders and walk around and search. But I think that a big portion, and the meat of the story, and really answering a lot of the questions that you will have about the story is taking your time, 
exploring every area and making sure that you listen to the voice recorders. It's such an integral part of this game and where I feel like the biggest part in Meat of the Story is located. I completely agree. And this game, to me, on a personal level, is so unique in that I never participate in these kinds of things. I I mean, when I've talked about this before with other games that we've played, even for the playthrough, that... I almost never give a shit about audio logs or diaries yeah. or anything. Like, Same don't here. waste my time. I want to run around and shoot people. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't care. But with this game, I wanted to hear every single audio diary because they were so well done and not, not a single one was irrelevant to the story. I totally agree with that. Yeah. And it, it was just neat hearing from different people and just sort of piecing it together as you go. You know, you get a little bit at a time just fascinating but same as you i really don't like these things in games but for whatever reason it just clicked with me in bioshock yeah and i just want to reiterate and follow up on what you were saying about how they are presented in the game as far as a gameplay element and i did write about this and i talked to crabby about it on the forum is that you can't be running around shooting, doing stuff, and pick up and listening to an audio log because it will either get cut off or you're not going to hear it. You're not going to be able to pay attention. So yeah, like you, I recommend clearing an area, picking up everything else as well because you have to press on PlayStation, it's X or I can't remember if it's X or Square, but whatever button it is, your action and pickup button is the same button that you use to play an audio log when you pick it up. Mm -hmm. So if you pick it up, you want to be standing still because if you turn the camera a little bit, you might be looking at a bag of potato chips that you'll pick up <laughs> instead of playing the audio log. It's a, it's a little bit janky as, as far as that is concerned. Uh, in contrast, Watch Dogs 2, which I'm playing right now, is everything just automatically plays. If you get a voice recording off someone's phone, it just starts playing. You know, you can cut it off, but you don't have to press something extra to hear it. So that presents its own set of issues. But the thing that just kind of stinks about this is if you trigger a story radio transmission, like you could be running along listening to an audio diary and then Atlas starts talking to you and it gets cut off. So just know that and it's not that big of a problem. Also, if you have one that gets cut off, you can go back into the menu and listen to it anytime. So exactly that's a little bit cumbersome but available for you so the game is a first person shooter and one of the cool things about this game is we've talked about the plasmids which are actually these powers that you have like electricity and fire so you basically shoot weapons with your right trigger and think of like your right hand or your right side and you shoot and use the plasmids with your left trigger or your left side or left hand. And this creates a great dichotomy as far as first person shooters go, where you can use the plasmids to soften your enemies or put status effects on them before you blow them away with a machine gun. And I touched upon on the forum that I sometimes was relying too much on my guns and that when I used the plasmids more, I was having a much easier time with all the enemies. 
I'm wondering for you, who's someone who's not a huge first-person shooter fan, this is a <laughs> totally different element of something very unique to this game. Uh, how did you feel about using the plasmids and supplementing the gunplay with those? Well, I had a very interesting experience. For whatever reason, the two controllers I use for my PS3, because that's the format I played it on, as you know, I, I like to play the original game. Mm-hmm. You know, and not play remakes. But uh, I was having some issues with the scrolling and stuff. And it, it just kept messing me up during the gameplay. It was really, really aggravating. I think it has something to do with my PS3 controllers. I think maybe my two-year-old has gotten his hands on them at some point, And I may need to buy a new PS3 controller. When you say scrolling, do you mean like scrolling through the menus to choose your... Yeah, just erratically. Okay, yeah. okay. Not not something that should have happened. Okay. But to answer your question, I feel like I was relying very heavily on my plasmids at the beginning. I really liked, I think it was called Incinerate, because you could just throw that on an enemy and they would just run around and just burn up. Right. You know, they, they wouldn't attack you or anything. So I would say for the first half of the game, maybe a little bit past that, I wasn't using weapons as much. But I felt like toward the end of the game, I was relying on weapons a bit more. I felt like the enemies were a little bit smarter. They were popping all over the screen at some points. Um, And if they caught on fire, a lot of times they could just run over to the water and douse it. And so it was hard to ignite them again once they were wet. And uh, I had to rely on my weapons a lot more. Cool. We actually have a quote from Metal Fro regarding this. And he said... I find that I'm taking a balanced approach. I often use a plasmid to help give me an advantage, such as shocking an enemy, then executing a headshot or using incinerate to deal damage and get them distracted, then follow that up with gunfire. That's probably why I find myself buying Eve a fair bit at vending machines. And uh, Eve is basically your ammo for your plasmids. So Mm -hmm. you have to monitor those levels as well. I think I finally caught that at the end. Adam and Eve, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty blatant, but it took me a while to uh, pick up on that, which so is funny. Yeah. So you get these blue vials of Eve, and there's these huge hypodermic needles that you jam into your forearm. It's very gruesome and cool when you reload on those. So, yeah, that's just the shooting. We're only just getting into the gameplay here. It's not a big element, but there is a little bit of platforming. There's, you can jump. You can also duck. So mm-hmm. the jumping and ducking under things are very minimal in this game. Wouldn't you say so? Yeah, that was one of my complaints I think I put on the forums. And that was when I had first started the game. Because I think the jump was triangle, which is an odd place for jumping to be on a platformer. But like you said, it's very minimal. So, you know, I got used to it very quickly. I just didn't know further down the line in the game how much I would use it. But someone, of course, on the form said, well, you don't use it that much, so it doesn't matter. You do use the ducking in a few spots. And uh, most places that's to find hidden items and stuff like that, which is really neat. And so, yeah, it works really well with this game. We also have a hacking mini game in this game, the infamous uh, Pipe Dreams segment, <laughs> where you have this kind of grid of squares and you reveal pieces of pipe that are facing different directions and you need to guide the flow of whatever liquid it's supposed to be slowly through this pipe from one point to another. 
And uh, I honestly don't have a problem with it, but I totally understand the complaints about this, <laughs> and I think they're totally valid. Yeah. Uh, what, what did you think about the hacking minigame? Yeah, I had posted about this as well, and I it was neat at first, but it really slows down gameplay, I feel like, and it becomes so monotonous. I wish they would have done something else. You know, maybe a different puzzle for each level. However, I like the results of it. I didn't use it much on the vending machines to make the prices go down, but I did use it to get companions. You can actually hack turrets and flying robots with machine guns to yep. aid you. And that is a really, really cool feature. I really like that. The one thing that I really did approve of is if you don't want to do the hacking, and if you fail at the hacking, we need to mention, you lose life. But one of the things I really like is that if you want to, you can just use cash and buy it out, which I like that feature. However, I feel like it doesn't make sense how you can use cash on this robot to hack it. You know what I mean? Oh, but, yeah. But I do like that ability. I wish they would have maybe done something that made a lot more sense. But I found myself using cash more often than maybe hacking it because I typically had a surplus. Yes, and there are also auto-hack items in the game, which I recommended in my tips and tricks to save those for the safes because the safes are almost impossible to hack (laughs) just if you do try to do them on your own. But they usually have good loot in them. So I recommended saving the auto-hacks for safes only. I have a quote from Crabmaster2000 about the hacking, and it goes as follows. At this point in the game, which I'm assuming is halfway, I'm sick of hacking. It's way too easy, and they don't seem to be changing it at all, so it's just the same thing over and over again. There should be a plasmid that lets you auto-hack anything under a certain level of difficulty. Since I've got so much extra money, I keep crafting auto-hacking tools just to speed up that part of the game now. Mm-hmm. And uh, what he's talking about with the crafting is there are vending machines all over the game. Some of them give you ammo. Some of them give you items. There's certain ones that you can use to upgrade your weapons. And there's one that you can use to craft items with materials that you loot in the world. So that's what he's talking about with crafting auto hack tools. And uh, I want to talk more about the sequels later, but I'll just say that the hacking is much improved in Bioshock 2, and some of the things Krabby's talking about here are implemented in that game, but I'll get to that later. Yeah, and we got to say that there's also plasmids that you can buy or uh, put on your person that maybe slows down the flow of the liquid going through the pipes or, right. you know, sort of aids you in the hacking as well. So, you know, there is that benefit, which is cool. Yep. Yeah. 
So I mentioned looting as far as getting materials for crafting, but I think looting is a major part of this game in general because you loot enemies, you loot garbage cans, you loot um, <laughs> desks, closets, anything. Uh, and actually looting garbage cans is kind of a joke in the Bioshock fandom. It's kind of a meme that the characters in Bioshock games will just eat a bag of potato chips out of a garbage can and that <laughs> replenishes their health and it's like... <laughs> You know, they give no rats behind about what they're consuming. So, hey, man, the precedent's been set with Castlevania. If you'll eat a pork chop out of a wall, then, uh, you know, (laughs) you'll eat potato chips out of a trash can. (laughs) Just following tradition. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the loot aspect of this game is huge. And you also loot money, uh, dollars, which is the currency for the vending machines and everything else. One of the things that's kind of interesting is that your wallet or the amount of money that you can carry is capped off at $500 and that cannot be expanded at any point in the game. So there's an incentive to kind of spend your money and keep your ammo stocked up or your Eve or auto hacking tools or any other kind of items that you need. I actually thought it was kind of weird that they don't let you expand the wallet, but it just leads to a a gameplay habit that there's no reason to hoard your money. You might as well spend it. And again, mm-hmm. that was one of my other tips and tricks that plenty of dollars to pick up throughout the world if you're looting everything. So just go ahead and spend it. So my tact with the looting thing was just to mash on the X button or whichever button it was to loot everything and take everything. What about you? Yeah, same thing. I mean, why okay. not? You know, just, just take yeah, exactly. what you can get. Yeah. But this leads to, and this is a kind of a minor point, but there are certain items that replenish your Eve but hurt your health or hurt your Eve and replenish your health, like cigarettes and alcohol. So to a certain extent, you want to be careful that you're not just consuming all this stuff because there is actually a drunkenness mechanic in the game as well, right? Yeah. Uh, it kind of blurs your vision and uh, slows you down a bit. It's very temporary, but it's just kind of a funny penalty of drinking too much alcohol. So Yeah, you got to try it out at least once. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, there's something called the uh, Vita Chambers in the game that is basically a respawn point when you die. And I played the game on easy, and I don't think I ever died in the game, but that's what they're there for. Yeah, I only died at the final boss in the game. That was it. Oh, okay. And then the last like little gameplay thing, and I'm sure we'll think of more because this game, it's not like super intricate, but there's a lot of little things going on. For example, the weapon upgrade stations are one-time use, so you have to choose carefully what upgrades you want to do to your weapons. It's a pretty neat mechanic. So there's all these like little things that we probably won't remember. But the last thing I want to talk about, because it was brought up on the forum and discussed a little bit, was the health stations. Mm -hmm. So you can run up to a health station and pay $15 or whatever it is to replenish your health. But the cool thing about these health stations is that the splicers can use them too. So you can be in a gunfight shooting people running around and whatever. And uh, you can find that a enemy that you damaged comes back at you with full health because they went over to a, <laughs> a health station and <laughs> and healed up. I think yeah. that's a really cool mechanic. Yeah. 
And what's even cooler is that you can hack the health stations. So if they go to them and try to use them, it harms them instead of heals them. So that's kind of neat too. I, I really never did that because typically when you're fighting enemies, you don't really have time to run over to a health station and hack it. You just kind of stumble upon these enemies. That's right. And that's why a lot of us in the forum just said we destroy them when we see them. Yep, because they drop first aid kits when you destroy them. Yes. That's another general tip and trick that I didn't even put in the forum is that when you purchase something from a vending machine, look at it because often something will fall out of it in addition to what you purchased from it. So did not notice uh, that. Yeah, that happens every once in a while. So I'm going to whip out my handy-dandy Prima strategy guide for Bioshock, and we'll talk a little bit about the weapons. We agreed not to go over every single plasmid, but we'll talk about a few of them. You start with the wrench, which is a melee weapon. You get a pistol very early on. So you basically, right off the bat, uh, you have a, a wrench and a pistol. Yeah, like a revolver. You should say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, true, true. Uh, then you get a machine gun, which is basically a Tommy gun lookalike. Mm-hmm. Uh, a shotgun. A grenade launcher, which has a really neat, like, homemade look to it. It looks mm-hmm. like a pipe, basically. Yeah. It's very steampunk looking. Yeah. Once you start adding stuff on to them, because you can enhance the guns throughout. That's right. Later in the game, you also get a chemical thrower and a crossbow. Yeah. The crossbow was much controversial on the forum, right? It was. You were the one you brought up that you didn't like using it, and then um, Disposed Hero actually pushed back on that and said it was one of the more powerful weapons in the game. And the reason for this is that the crossbow is basically your sniper rifle in the game, right? Yes, it is. It's a ranged weapon. Yeah. So that's your weapon set. So I'll just jump out and say I use mostly the machine gun and the shotgun. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about you, Rich? Same for me. I love the shotgun. You know how I am. I mean, when we play Doom, I just love the (laughs) shotgun. I I love that kind of close-up ability and, you know, damage and carnage from a shotgun. So uh, it's always one of my favorite weapons in any first-person shooter I'm playing. But one weapon that I was surprised that I used a lot was the wrench. I would just sneak around and use that thing like it was nothing. And I had some plasmids, which we may talk about, which would actually give you energy back when you use the wrench. So you could just keep getting health and Eve. And, uh, you know, I'd fight just a group and just swing that wrench as much as I could and just end up having more health than I started that fight with. It was kind of crazy. Yeah, that's cool. That's um, one of those like secondary plasmids that gives you a unique buff, basically. So, yeah, that's cool. So let me see. Speaking of the plasmids, again, I'm looking at my, my strategy guide, which is beautiful, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, just to further talk about the weapons, I'll just say that I really never use the chemical thrower. Oh, yeah? Yeah, no. I use the grenade launcher because, like, before I would fight the big daddies, I would throw down those landmine kind of things, and then I would fire rockets at them as well, and that seemed to work best for me. I know someone said the chemical throwers are really good against the big daddies, but I don't know. I just, you know, found it kind of a slow weapon when I was fighting splicers, and so I really didn't put any time into using that weapon at all. Same with the crossbow. It was too slow as far as like reloading. And I know it's like a sniper rifle, but uh, 
having so many problems with my controller as far as it like switching back and forth between weapons, you know, I, I tried to minimize that and, you know, tended to go more with the wrench, the shotgun and the machine gun like you did. Cool. So here's a general overview of the uh, plasmids here. Electrobolt is you shoot electricity out of your fingertips and incinerate is you shoot fire out of your fingertips. Those are the two big ones. Yeah. Uh, there are many others, such as, trying to think of some of my favorites here. You got an insect swarm where you <laughs> like shoot bees out of your hands. and they, I, I didn't care for that much. Yeah. yeah, that wasn't a great one. Especially because you could attract big daddies with it sometimes. They would just attack big daddies and it would get them to start fighting you. Oh, you know, I didn't even you realize that. Yeah, yeah that's not yeah. good. Um, one that you have to use in a story context is telekinesis, which is yes. um, kind of like the gravity gun in Half-Life. You can pick up objects in the world and throw them or propel them at other things. Let's be honest, you only have to use it once. You do, yeah, yeah, exactly. To open a door, you do have to use it one time to just throw a grenade back at an enemy, and that's it. But yeah. uh, I used it quite a few times. Oh, okay. um, there are those missile turrets that shoot these football-sized missiles at you. Yeah. And uh, telekinesis is a good way to just reverse course on those and send them right back at the turret. didn't think about that. That's cool. Yeah. The other one I wanted to touch on was Hypnotize Big Daddy. Oh, yeah. and That's a good uh, one. <laughs> yeah, that one's awesome because you can, it does what it says. You hypnotize a Big Daddy and he becomes your bodyguard for a while. And it lasts longer than you would think. You can mm-hmm. get a lot of work done while a Big Daddy is protecting you. And that's that was one of my favorite plasmids throughout the game. I, I leaned on it quite heavily. Yeah, the only uh, negative is it uses an entire vial of Eve. True. I think it's worth it, though. Yeah, it can be. Just don't miss when you throw it. (laughs) Yeah, true. Well, there are more than those. We didn't mention every single one, but like I said, some of them are a little weird. There's one called the Cyclone Trap, where you just put a thing on the floor that kind of shoots the enemies up into the air, but... Well, I guess we should say that is a gameplay element. It's not used to a great degree, but there are a few scenarios in the game where you are warned that a situation is about to take place and you can kind of prep the area for what is about to happen. And it becomes kind of this mini horde mode for a couple of minutes. (laughs) That happens a couple of times in the game. And uh, that was the only time I thought the cyclone traps were useful. Yeah. Most of the time I would just use the landmines for that too, you know? Yeah, and I guess we can segue that into the um, upgrades to the weapons and the different ammo types. For example, for your machine gun, you not only have normal rounds, but you have anti-personnel rounds and armor-piercing rounds, which sound the same, but they're really not. And then um, there's incendiary rounds for some of the... Uh, weapons. The shotgun has electric buck, which is very useful. In addition to all that, you can upgrade all the weapons. So some of them have less recoil, some of them have a longer range, more ammo, and those you would do at those one-time use weapon upgrade stations. Right. I just want to kind of go back to the uh, plasmids and just talk about which ones I really didn't like. And that was the one where you could freeze people. You could freeze them and then hit them with a wrench and they would just completely shatter. However, you sacrificed any loot that you might get. So that was one I didn't really care for. And then the electroshock, 
I liked. And one of the things that you could do with it is if you had enemies in the water, you could throw it in the water and it would electrocute all the enemies that were standing in that spot. Um, and it was also used to open certain secret doors and passageways. So I would make sure that I always had that one on my person. So that was one I used quite a bit as well. Nice. Well, having said that, I have another quote from Metal Fro. He used the chemical thrower and he says, I was using the napalm and the incinerate plasmid on splicers. And in one corridor where there's water, they would run quickly to that and dive in the water to douse themselves and dispense with the fire. I thought that was a pretty nice touch and made me more positive on the game's elemental engine than I had previously been. Certainly they put more thought into that than I thought. Yeah, great point. Yeah, I think we were talking about off the air that you didn't see too many examples of using the electroshock to shock bodies of water, but I mm -hmm. actually felt that I used that quite a few times. And also they have um, oil slicks that you can kind of set on fire with incinerate yeah. and you got to kind of spot them, but they can be very useful to just you know, set up a whole area on fire, you know? Absolutely. I think it's just one of those mechanics that you either gravitate toward and remember, or you just kind of forget about. And I think for me, being so frantic anyway, when I'm playing a first person shooter, it's not something that I was, uh, you know, thinking about to have in my arsenal as a tactic. So, you know, maybe going back through that, it's something that I would look for on the second playthrough. Cool. So I think we can move into the last and one of the most important gameplay elements as we begin to talk about the enemy types and wrap up the gameplay segment, which would be the big daddy little sister element of the game. And as I alluded to earlier, in every level, there's a few of these little sisters that you have to deal with you actually don't have to deal with them and that's something i'll i'll get to in a minute but mm -hmm. you encounter them one way or the other and you and the cool thing about the big daddies and little sisters is if you don't bother them they won't bother you so that's right you could see these huge hulking things the big daddies are made to be very intimidating but they are like an animal, you know, an animal in the wild. They won't bother you if you don't bother them kind of yeah, thing. They're just protectors, basically. Right, sisters. right, right. So the rub there is that to access a little sister for a harvest or rescue, you have to take out the big daddy that is guarding her. There are many strategies, and we talked about a few of the, the ways you can cheese the big daddies by just damaging them near a Vita chamber because they don't lose their damage when you respawn, so you can just keep working on them. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can also kind of prepare for these battles with some of the traps we were talking about. They have um, trip line bolts with a crossbow that you can use. Uh, there's all kinds of things you can do. There's also a plasmid called Enrage, which I didn't use at all in the game, but you can enrage splicers to fight big daddies for you, which is almost a reverse of the hypnotized big daddy. Mm -hmm. You can hack turrets as well to fight them or uh, hack the uh, flying armed alarms, right? Yeah, they're called bots. I would call them drones or whatever. Yeah, but yeah, yeah drones, these little man. helicopters that make this cool whistling sound when they're flying around. <laughs> um, the whole thing about the big daddies is they are supposed to be this like event every time you fight one. 
and they're a huge part of the game. But as I said, once you get your strategies down, once you learn how to cheese them, if you choose to do it that way, it kind of has like a, a rinse and repeat quality to it. Yeah. I think if there were maybe fewer of them, it might be different. I don't know if I would necessarily change that because of the utility they have in the game. What do you think about the big daddies? I like them. I think they're a fun part of the game. They act sort of like mini bosses, though I really wouldn't want to call them that because, you know, they have a different purpose. But like you said, I, I can't fathom like taking them out of the game. I think that's what makes Bioshock Bioshock. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, they're, they're such an integral part of the game. And like I said, I mean, if you look at the cover of the game, that's what's on the cover. That's what I was looking forward to most in playing this game, fighting the big daddies and, you know, figuring out what the little sisters are. You know, I'd always seen them in photos and stuff. And so, uh, yeah, such a vital and neat part of the game, I think. And, uh, you know, setting all that stuff up to battle them, I think it's a lot of fun. It requires some planning and uh, strategy, and, and I really like that a lot. One of the things I want to go back to is the Vita Chambers, and you were saying that if you get killed by a Big Daddy, you respawn at a Vita Chamber. Well, kind of the problem is, and a lot of complaints from some of the players and you know some people on our forums as well, is that when you've damaged a Big Daddy and you come back at a Vita Chamber, the Big Daddy still has all the damage you've done to it. So it kind of eases the game a bit. Yep. And uh, you can just kind of just keep fighting them, dying and coming back and fighting them until they're gone. There's really no roadblock as far as not being able to defeat them. If you just continuously play this game, you're going to get to the end of it. And uh, that's a complaint by uh, many gamers. Yeah, and that's exactly what I meant when I said cheesing the big daddies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess you could say that's kind of a weakness of the uh, mechanics there. But I want to throw in one more quote from Krabby and we could talk about this real quick quote the game did something that I absolutely hate when I was leaving the theater and heading to Ryan Industries the game pulled up a menu to let me know that I hadn't found all the little sisters in the area yet and it strongly suggested I go find them before I move on I wish it would have not told me that let me make mistakes and not hold my hand so here's one I won't put words in your mouth, but I think both of us kind of disagreed <laughs> with Krabby on this one. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have a problem with this. When you pause the game, it tells you how many little sisters are in the level. It'll even show you which ones you've dealt with, uh, mm -hmm. for lack of a better phrase. So I didn't think this was a huge deal. What about you? You know, it never happened to me. I oh, never, okay. I never had that pop up. So, you know, maybe I'm a little biased and can't really comment on it as much. I understand where he's coming from. And uh, I kind of agree with that to a sense. However, as a newcomer to this game, I think I'd mentioned to you pre-call that it was probably halfway or further than halfway through the game where I realized that if you pull up the menu, that you can see how many you've rescued. And, you know, halfway through, I was like, well, I know Sean told me that I need to save all these little sisters in order to get the good ending of the game, so I want to do that. I'm like, I don't know if I did it or not, and I was worried about that, and I was like, well, I've already played 60-70% of this game. I'm not going to go back and start over. So part of me feels like if that would have popped up, I would have been like sort of relieved 
like, oh, well, I need to go back and find this little sister because I wanted the good ending, you know. Right. But at the same time, I understand what Krabby's saying as well. It is a bit of a hand-holding technique, and it's kind of revealing that if you don't save all these, then there may be a different ending to this game. It's not something that's discoverable on your own. Right. So that brings me to something that I want to comment on, which is something Ken Levine said in an interview. And there's interviews on the Bioshock HD collection between Ken Levine and another gentleman from Irrational, whose name I can't remember, and mm-hmm. Jeff Keeley, who's a video game journalist, personality person who everybody knows. And they're talking about the development of the game. And Levine said that he wished he had made the penalty harsher when you save or rescue the little sisters, meaning that whether you harvest or save them, you get Adam, but you get less Adam if you rescue them. But the problem there, and and Levine touches on it himself, is that you don't benefit that much more by harvesting them and doing this kind of evil thing. In fact, once you rescue enough little sisters, they bring you more Adam and, you know, they put these teddy bears by the vending machines. The vending machines for using Adam are called gatherer's gardens. All you have to do is find the gatherer's garden on the map. You go get that, you get loaded up with more Adam and then you can spend it. And I played this on easy, but I can't think if the game was any more difficult that this would change anything because the atom is used to increase your slots and increase your stats. It's not used as ammo. That's what Eve is for. Mm -hmm. So by the end of the game, I had so much atom that I was like at a gatherer's garden finding stuff to just blow it on because I knew the game was almost over. The reason I say that is because I rescued every single little sister. So... I think Levine is right on the money that what he said is it should have backed you into a corner more if you rescue all the little sisters. It should have been more of a penalty to do that. And I think that was kind of a missed opportunity because if you played the game before you or even if you are a couple levels into the game and you can kind of sense what's going on as far as how much Adam you have... I don't think there's any gameplay reason to harvest the little sisters. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, and also thinking about this moral choice that you have to make, right? I mean, for me, it's like I can't make the moral choice of harvesting these little sisters and killing these children, right. basically, <laughs> to, to make myself better. I mean, if I know I can still finish the game without having to do that, which I know I can, then um, why do it? It plays in once again to your your idea of ethics. You know, can you do that? Can you make that sacrifice? And again, I'm at that moral dilemma of having children and I just cannot do it. I almost always do this. If I'm given a moral choice in a video game, I always take the good side anyway. So, but you're right. The presentation of this kind of binary choice involves killing a child <laughs> you know it's, so it does it's, it's kind of um you know i've never done it in gameplay and i've watched it on youtube maybe once to see what happens so 
it's just not attractive at all. And even if it was a way harsher penalty to rescue all of them, I would probably have still found a way to get through that. But I think it's a valid self-criticism from Levine himself that they should have made that a little bit more of a stark contrast. Right. I never harmed any of them, so I don't know what I'm contrasting it to. I think it's you get about a third less of of the amount of Adam if you rescue versus harvest. So, yeah. So I'll just throw one more quote in here since we're kind of moving away from um, the story and gameplay. We'll get into graphics and sound, and then we'll roll into final thoughts. But I have a quote from Zofar, 5.3 on the forum, friend of the show, former guest. He said, I don't have any trouble buying into the story. It's a little erratically told, yes, but it's a slow burn approach to storytelling. A big part of the fun for me was coming into this city that clearly used to be grand, but has gone to hell and filling in the context of the characters. Audiologues themselves don't make much sense in a real-world practical way, but when done well as a storytelling device, they're a neat way to fill in the backstory and give depth to what's going on. I think that's a really good point from Zofar because (laughs) as much as I like the audio diaries, some of them are like... Why would a person be recording an audio diary in this situation? <laughs> like, it makes right. absolutely no sense that there's a document of some of these uh, <laughs> scenarios that these ancillary characters have found themselves in. So that's a good point right there from Zofar. So let's move into the graphics and sound segment of the discussion here. Uh, before we do that, can I talk about one more mechanic that I think we passed over? Oh, yeah, please do. Just in reference to the splicers, during the game, you get this other mechanic, which is the camera. Oh, yes. Which we didn't mention. No, thank you for bringing this up. Great, great point. The camera is used to take pictures of the different splicers, and as you take more and more pictures, you get a rating, depending on if the splicer's doing an action or if the splicer's still alive uh, when you kill it. And once you fill up that meter you get bonus benefits as far as taking those enemies out, which can be very beneficial. However, you do have to take the time and can take damage in order to take these photographs. So it sort of felt a bit tacked on to me. I tried it out a few times and I was just like, you know what, I'm getting through this game fine without taking the picture. So I'm just not going to do that anymore. But uh, I don't know. How did you feel about the camera in this game? Yeah, and that's actually kind of like the telekinesis plasmid. It's something that you have to use one time. You know, it's required for one story part of the game, and then you don't have to use it at all. And I also want to add that it's not just splicers that you can research, but things like Big Daddy's Little Sisters, um, the the security devices. You can research all kinds of different stuff with the camera, and it gives you all kinds of different benefits. So... Like you, I didn't use it a ton. I, pr- I probably used it more than you did based on what you're saying, mm-hmm. just to see what would happen as I leveled up that uh, meter and what kind of pictures you would need to take. So basically, if it was like a major fracas with a whole ton of enemies, I wasn't going to take the camera out. But if I had one or two splicers running around or coming at me, I'd try to snap a few pictures just to see what would happen. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe a little tacked on, but I thought it was cool. Yeah, it's a neat mechanic, and 
I'm sure if either of us were to play it on a more difficult level, I'm sure that would be a great benefit in playing it that way, you know, being able to take out things better, especially, oh man, those Houdini splicers that disappear are aggravating. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any, any help with those or any help with like security systems or big daddies on a more difficult setting where you have less ammo, that it would probably be a, a lot more beneficial in that type of playthrough. I'm glad you brought up the Houdini splicers because I don't know where else I would say this in the podcast and I I don't want to forget is that not this time because I knew it was coming, but the first time I played this game and there's that one moment where the first time you encounter a Houdini splicer is where one appears behind you. Oh, yeah, I remember that. if you time it right and you turn around, he's just standing there. That's one of the scariest things that's ever happened to me in a video game. I'm not even kidding. Like, I play a lot of horror games, a lot of grotesque and stuff that's supposed to be scary and gore, whatever, jump scares, whatever you want to say. And I don't get nearly as scared as the first time I turned around and that thing was standing there right in front of me. Man, yeah, that was what a, good. What a good, <laughs> what a good one. Somewhere on the sea, somewhere waiting for me. My lover stands on golden sand. Let's get into the dystopia that is Rapture as far as a environment graphically and visually and with the music and sound because it all ties together really beautifully in this it game. It does, yeah. So Rapture is presented in an Art Deco style. Art Deco is a style of architecture and art that was created before World War One as a expression of modern taste, luxury, technology. And when you see it, it really puts you in a time and place. And Mm -hmm. the game takes place in the late 50s. 
So the style of everything that you see is, I think, very well represented. And I, I actually really enjoy the Art Deco style. I love it, yeah. Everything is just very sharp and straight lines. And there's a real beauty and elegance to it that I quite enjoy. And I really like the way it's used for Rapture. And one of the things is because you encounter and enter Rapture after its fall and it's falling into ruin, you really are given an opportunity to use your imagination to think about what Rapture would have looked like in its heyday. And I think that's one of the more fascinating parts of the game. I will say that there is a DLC for Bioshock Infinite called Burial at Sea where you get to do exactly that and visit Rapture before the fall. It's one of those things where you're better off just using your imagination because it's one of those things that the actual experience of it doesn't live up to what you conceptualize in your own mind. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the Art Deco influence is really cool in this game, and I'm a big fan of it. Sounds like you are, too. I am, and uh, you know, kind of what you have to realize is this Art Deco style that was prominent at the time wasn't something that was in every household, right? I mean, this is a very high-end, high-society right. look, and uh, it sort of encapsulates what Rapture is supposed to be. I really like the look of this game. You know, before playing it, I knew that it had this Art Deco style. I'd seen it in photos or, um, you know, maybe a, a short video clip that I had seen. And so that was a big reason I wanted to play this game. Just completely fascinated with this idea of something being underwater and this Art Deco style. One of the things that I really thought was pretty cool about the environment is that it is underwater. I'd mentioned this idea of Atlantis, like this lost city. But the idea of it not being on land... And in the water is because it is meant to be undiscoverable, right? You've got communist Russia on one side, and you've got capitalistic U.S. on the other side. So it becomes this sort of underwater refutation of those two ideals, right? Capitalism and communism, which if you have it underwater, no one can find you. And this is where a utopian society could thrive underwater and undetected. Right. Great points. Again, the beauty of the game is the contrast between the luxury and class of Art Deco with dead bodies right. and blood and, and water ruin, and yeah. flooding <laughs> and, and everything else strewn all about the place. That's what makes the game visually interesting. One of the other elements of the game is the music, and I know you are particularly a fan of the licensed music that was used in this game, and it's used to great environmental effect. It's very similar to if you've played any of the Fallout games where they use big band and jazz music. That is kind of light and happy music, but juxtaposed against the horrors of what's going on in the game, it becomes super, super creepy which is really amazing. I know you really enjoyed that, Rich. Yeah, you're taking the words right out of my mouth. I really enjoyed this part of the game, and the choice of licensed music is perfect. Um, I really like the use of the song Beyond the Sea. The old music, it's like the whole idea of happy days are here again, you know, that was going on during that time period, and this music that was really reflecting that. But like you said, in juxtaposition, 
of what's going on down there, it makes it so creepy. And it's just so well done. Such a great choice in using that as the music. Awesome. Well, I mean, I know we're trying to move this along. I mean, I could talk about Bioshock all day and night. (laughs) But before we start wrapping it up and talking about final thoughts and getting to the end here, do you have anything else about any gameplay, story, graphics, sound, anything else you want to throw in there before we start wrapping up? I do. I have one thing that I want to talk about, and it is the tattoo on your hand. Cool. What I love about this is that that tattoo is such a hidden twist ending in this game. You see it at the beginning of the game. It's a chain on your wrist. And it's something you notice and you just kind of put it aside as just, oh, okay, that's just a tattoo. This is a first person game. It's just there to give it artistic presence. It's there just to uh, maybe give some insight to the character as far as who he is as someone who may have a tattoo. But you come to this realization about three quarters through the game that this tattoo is the link of you being a member of this society at one time because they always talk about the great chain in this game. And so I never put that together until at the end of the game. It's there. It's in plain sight. But it's so brilliant that they did that. They put it right there for you. Here's a big piece of the story that you could unravel at the beginning of the game, but you don't until later on after you've killed Andrew Ryan. And I love that piece of storytelling. I love when something just kind of comes to the surface. You're like, oh my God, you know, it's been here the entire time. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. I really like that little touch as well. I do have one set of final thoughts from the community and that comes from Crabmaster 2000. I foreshadowed his final thoughts a little bit, but here they are in his words. As for how I feel about the game in general, I don't care for it. It's a long repetitive slog for very little actual story. Cool twists don't make it worth the time investment. If they cut out half of the game, I think it would have been a lot more enjoyable. The shooting itself never evolved past the first area, and it wasn't very fun there. The hacking just got worse and worse to the point where I felt like a modern mobile game at the end where I was spending money to not play the game by purchasing auto-hack tools. Nearly all of the plasmids and upgrades felt tacked on just to flush out the game and weren't actually useful. The last fight, and really every encounter after the first Big Daddy, was so easy it was very silly that he would knowingly keep restraining himself even after you started harvesting him. The style of storytelling just didn't jive with me. I had a really hard time piecing things together and getting attached to any of the characters. It's a neat idea and I can definitely see the merit, it's just not for me. Well, Krabby, tell us how you really feel next time. Uh, so one thing that just made me realize is that we didn't really talk about the final boss battle and we should very quickly so when you encounter fontaine he's like a superhuman just like roided out on plasmids and adam (laughs) and eve and he's just this big glowing mutant kind of thing a lot of people actually hate the final boss battle it was a heavy criticism of the game because it took something that was grounded in reality and made it almost super fantastical and um 
the mechanic that Krabby is talking about is the way to defeat the super version of Fontaine is to attack him while he's replenishing his atom and he just kind of sets himself up in this machine that refuels him and that's when you can do damage to him i actually don't have a problem with the final boss because i think once you throw in the plasmids and all that kind of stuff was not grounded in reality enough for me that i was offended by some super mutant that was on them sounds like you agree yeah, I mean, what would you expect? I mean, right, right. why would you not expect someone to take it all the way to seek that ultimate power? Right. I didn't have a problem with it. I didn't really care for the final boss fight. I'll be honest. Uh, okay. It just wasn't a lot of fun to me. The one time that I did die is I didn't realize that you had to go up there while he was recharging. Oh, so, okay. Uh, yeah, the fight was average to me. The theme or, you know, what was going on, I was fine with. Cool. And we should talk about the endings real quick. You and I just watched all three endings on YouTube before we went on the air. The best ending and the canon ending you get by rescuing every little sister that you encounter. I'm pretty sure you don't have to rescue every single one, meaning you can skip or miss a few, but you can't harvest any. I think if you harvest more than one, you get a bad ending. If you harvest one, you get the neutral ending. I'm pretty sure that's how it is. Don't quote me on that. There's a line that you cross by harvesting too many. But to get the best ending, just rescue everyone you encounter. And that ending is the little sisters who, by the way, they attack Fontaine. Once you beat him, quote unquote, in the gameplay aspect, (laughs) it triggers a cutscene where the little sisters kind of hoard onto him and and attack him and suck out all his atom. I love it. That's vicious, dude. Yeah, <laughs> it's so it, cool. Yeah. It is pretty awesome. And then they basically give you the key to the city. But in the good ending, you kind of reject that and you take all the little sisters to the surface and you give them a good life. And there's a little vignette of them like graduating college and you basically go through your life with them as your family to the point where they're with you on your deathbed before yeah, the credits that roll. Part. Yeah, that was that was really awesome. You being on your deathbed with your arm out and you see all these hands coming and, and touching your arm. I thought that was yeah. cool. It's very nice, very pleasant. The bad ending and the neutral quote unquote ending are very similar, so we'll just talk about them as one thing. You take over the city and basically try to spread the damage that the city is doing you send a bunch of splicers to the surface and then the final shot is a a nuclear missile (laughs) about to be launched from rapture (laughs) which i thought was hilarious because it feels like really over the top that you're going to shoot a nuke out of rapture but that's the bad ending and the neutral ending basically yeah, you become the one that's consumed with the power right? Uh, instead of Fontaine. You got the good ending. I got the good ending. I think we're both happy with the endings we got and yes, would not have been happy with the other endings. Yeah. So we did good. Well, if you're ready to roll into final thoughts, I'll give it to you first and uh, we'll wrap it up here. Yeah, I just want to kind of start off by addressing what Krabby was saying in his final thoughts. 
I do think that the hacking was annoying, and I do think a part of this game, at one point I was thinking, like, this is just full of fetch quests. I, I really wish that there would just be some areas that you just had to traverse through, like you did toward the beginning of the game. So a little bit more variety, not as much fetching. And so those points I do agree with him on. However, I think your enjoyment of this game is really based on your play style. And for Krabby, I think he's a fantastic gamer, and he likes to kind of fly through games and blast away at enemies and progress and keep moving on and gather story as he goes. Whereas, I kind of feel like this game wants you to slow play it. I think this game wants you to check out all the areas, look through every trash can, find every secret area. It really requires a very methodical approach and this is where you find the recorders. This is where you get to listen to the story in small snippets and, you know, kind of piece what's going on as a whole with these little vignettes. I love that about this game. I love that there's this air of mystery when you're down there. You're discovering this world that nobody knows about and something off the wall and evil has gone on down here. You can tell it used to be a great society and something's gone wrong and you're trying to piece that together. And I think that's the beauty of this game. And I think, Sean, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that you and I are more prone to playing games that have good stories. We like the story element of the game just as much as we like the gameplay, whereas other gamers are more interested in the gameplay. And so there are people that would play this game and not enjoy it, where there's people like you and I who I think did quite enjoy this game. I did have some problems. I really did not like some of the movement in the game from a first-person perspective, which is something I just have a problem with and have always had a problem with in first-person games. I think Doom did it a lot better. However, Doom is a newer game. This is an older game. So I imagine at the time when this came out, you know, it was very inventive and very fresh. I just found that sometimes I was having a lot of trouble finding where I was getting attacked from. And I know you could see like little red marks on the sides of the screens and that's supposed to kind of direct you to where you were being attacked from, but it didn't always work out that way for me. So I did have a bit of a problem with the gameplay in that instance. However, like I said, I really loved just slowly playing through this game and not feeling rushed and exploring all these areas. The game has a map system, which we didn't mention, but it's incredible. It does a really good job of helping you get from one place to the next and also showing you what areas that you might have missed. Overall, really enjoyed this game. So happy that I played it. Would love to play the sequels at some point if you guys ever wanted to do that as a part of a playthrough. That would be awesome. And uh, yeah, definitely a game that I would highly recommend as a wonderful experience and something that has a fantastic story. Very good. And I was going to ask you about playing the sequels, so I'm glad you brought that up. I'll just throw out there that Bioshock 2 was not developed by Ken Levine and his team. It was developed by an in-house studio at 2K. Therefore, Bioshock 2 becomes very controversial amongst the fan base as to whether or not it's a valid sequel and, you know, whether or not it deserves its place as Bioshock 2, basically. I'll just boil my opinion and I'll say I love Bioshock 2 and I 
would love to play it. It improves on many of the gameplay elements that we complained about in Bioshock 1. Also, uh, there's Bioshock Infinite, which was developed by Ken Levine and his team. So that is out there as well. So as far as my final thoughts, yeah, Bioshock blew me away the first time I played it. It was a game that I couldn't wait to play when I heard about it, and I loved every minute of it the first time I played it. Revisiting it was a little bit different. I definitely felt the fetch questiness of it, and there was much discussion about that today here on the recording and also on the forum that I think the directiveness of it just being led from one point to another kind of gets tiresome after a while where you don't feel like you're actually progressing anything. You're just completing a checklist of tasks. However, it's just a really fun game. The guns and the plasmids and the way they interact together, the RPG elements. For a first-person shooter, there's enough going on that you have to think about and manage at all times that it's interesting from a gameplay perspective. And then as far as the story and the background philosophy of everything, somebody who's listened to this whole show at this point might say... Well, how could an Ayn Rand fan like Bioshock so much when it seems like Bioshock is a refutation of objectivism? And I would just say that I don't think it is a refutation of objectivism, because if you listen carefully to, for example, what Andrew Ryan is saying, he's actually not an objectivist. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Just listen to what he's saying. He's not exhibiting objectivist values at all times. And I will just say being the dictator of your own little small city is not <laughs> is not an objectivist <laughs> value. Yeah, I think that was the intent, though. I think that that's what they were going for. I mean, obviously, Andrew Ryan, Ian Rand. Right. <laughs> yeah, yes, it, it's obvious. Exactly. But I think it kind of backfired on them not knowing objectivist philosophy well enough. Right. And again, I watch a lot of interviews with Ken Levine, and I'm comfortable saying what he said in one of those interviews was, oh, I, I read The Fountainhead and I remember some of this stuff. And I thought, what would it be like if this was in a game kind of thing? Like it was very offhanded and hand waving the way that he claimed to be inspired to use that as a backdrop for the game. So I'm not saying they didn't do their research or didn't do anything uh, that wasn't intentional, but uh if you say like, oh yeah, Bioshock is a total takedown of Ayn Rand's philosophy, it's not. And uh, <laughs> no. if you're paying attention, that's not what it is. So anyway, I highly recommend this game. I still love it. Didn't love it as much the second playthrough because some of the experience weren't so fresh and new and some of the annoying stuff was even more annoying the second time around. But I'm actually really excited to play Bioshock 2 because I know from a gameplay perspective it's a little bit better. And I'll just give you a little example of that is that the hacking minigame is totally different, way not easier, but just way quicker. And there's also a hacking remote tool. So if you see a camera from far away, you can shoot it with a hacking dart and it will trigger the hacking minigame. So there's a lot of little cool quality of life improvements in Bioshock 2 that makes me want to play the game again. And I will also say that I purchased the Bioshock HD collection for this playthrough 
And I can recommend that if you want to play a higher fidelity graphical version of Bioshock 1 and 2 and Infinite. However, there are no real frills added to the game. It's basically just an HD remaster. It's not a remake of the game. It's just the game in a spiffier package with some of those Ken Levine interviews I was talking about added in the special features. And by the way, those interviews have to be found in the game. They are items in the game that you have to find. So I couldn't even watch all of them because I didn't find them. I'm sure they're on YouTube, but I only watched the ones I found. So, ooh, yeah, I think that's all I have to say for my final thoughts. I'm glad you wrapped the Ayn Rand stuff back in because I felt like we put a lot of emphasis on that at the beginning and never really brought it back in toward the end. So that was awesome. Uh, yeah, thanks. And once again, thank you to the community. This is a forum thread that I'll probably go back to and read a couple of years from now and think we really took Bioshock apart when we played through it. These guys are awesome. Yeah. So um, again, shout outs to everybody uh, who played. We got a lot of participants and a lot of just verbose commentary on the game itself. Whew, that's it, man. I'm going to kick it over to you for December, and we have a last-minute announcement for January, so let's go for it. Awesome. Well, I don't even know what you're going to pick for January yet. We were kind of in the middle of two games, so this is going to be as much a surprise to me as it will be to other people. So I'm looking forward to it. But anyway, of course, December is always our competition month on the site, and today's December 2nd, so we're already in full swing no pun intended, in our golf tournament. Currently, we're doing Neo Turf Masters, and then we're going to move on to Mario Golf Toadstool Tour on the GameCube in our second 10-day event, and then we're going to be playing Hot Shots 4 in the last 10 days to wrap it up. So it's in full swing now. Everyone's having a lot of fun with it. There's already some interaction on the forums. Now, I haven't checked since the beginning of this call, but uh, yours truly was in the lead with a nine under on the Australian course on Neo Turf Masters. So Sean, man, you got to do some work, buddy. Yeah, it's true. I have yet to, <laughs> to start, but um, I'm gearing up. I will probably today. Yeah, it's really fun, too, because this is a team event and I've been, you know, corresponding in private with my teammates and, you know, giving strategies about different holes and stuff. And so I think this is going to be a really special event and everyone that's participating in it so far is just so excited about it. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be great. Awesome. So, yeah, our January game is something I just picked today because we were scrambling <laughs> to make this announcement on the air. And uh, I wanted to play a handheld game because we haven't done one in a while. And I was looking for something where I could kind of take a break from Jean d'Arc because of the rut that I've kind of been in with that game that I talked about earlier. So I thought, well, let me look at some DS games. I haven't played through a DS game in a while. And this is a game that's been on my radar for a while, but as I looked into it, I feel like it'll be perfect for a playthrough game. And that game is Lunar Nights. This is a kind of action role-playing game that was developed by Hideo Kojima. And it's part of the Boktai series, which, if you might remember, were those Game Boy Advance games that have like the sunlight sensor on them. So the gameplay is different if you're outside or inside in real life. The DS game Lunar Nights doesn't have the sun sensor, so you don't have to worry about that. You can play it anywhere. 
And um, I think it's going to be a good playthrough because the game itself is only about 12 hours long. It's divided into six chapters, so the checkpointing will be nice and clean. And if you can find a copy of this game at GameStop, it goes for $5 used. Cool. If you want a complete copy off eBay, it's going to be about 15 But this is going to be an affordable title for everybody to pick up and play with us. So Lunar Nights on the Nintendo DS is our January game. Awesome, man. Looking forward to it. Watched a little bit of a gameplay video, so should be a fun month. for another episode thank you for listening and for participating in the playthrough in january we'll charge up our nintendo ds's and run around with the lunar knights an action adventure brought to you by the same team as the metal gear solid series thank you for listening and we'll see you next month on the playcast
fresh meat. Sorry about that. Sorry it took so long. I missed my uh, normal 1030 appointment with Dr. John. So, uh... <laughs> so Rapture is... So, you know, it's Rapture. funny. Rapture. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. You have Art Deco here. And I, probably when we started playing the game, I did a little research on Art Deco. And now I can't remember any of it. Mm, nerd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My next guest is uh, here for her first visit on this show. She is uh, probably one of the most intense, uh, outspoken, perhaps one of the most intellectual voices in America today. Uh, her books, The Fountainhead, which was made into a motion picture, and Atlas Shrugged, have sold millions of copies. And uh, some people say that her objectivism, objectivist newsletter is one of the more vital publications in the world today. This is her new book called Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. I think you will find her most unusual and most controversial. Would you welcome, please, Miss Ayn Rand? It's uh, it's indeed a pleasure to have you with us tonight. I'm delighted to be here. I know that you probably don't appear on many shows of this nature. It's kind of a a crazy entertainment show generally, although we do like to sit down occasionally and uh, and get some views of people that are important in the world today. Well, I don't uh, disapprove of entertainment. In fact, I've been watching you many times. I'm very, very happy. I know it's very difficult to state any philosophical principles like objectivism in a, in a short period of time or to condense it, but Quite. can you give us some basic idea of objectivism and the, the principles of philosophy that you believe in? All right, now I'll make it very brief with the understanding that anyone who really is interested would look it up in my books, particularly in Atlas Shrugged, because otherwise I can't give a long discourse and proof here. So just as mentioning the highlights, the basic principle of objectivism is that man must be guided exclusively by reason. Reason is the faculty that identifies and integrates the material provided by his senses. That's a formal definition. That reason is man's only tool of knowledge, his only guide to action, and his only guide to the choice of values. As a consequence of that, man's proper ethics or morality is a morality of rational self-interest, which means that every man has a right to exist for his own sake, and he must not sacrifice himself to others or sacrifice others to himself that the achievement of his own rational happiness is the highest moral purpose of his life. As a consequence of that, the only system, the only political system which expresses this morality is the system of laissez-faire capitalism, by which I mean full, unregulated, uncontrolled capitalism, a system based on the recognition of individual rights including property rights in which all properties owned by private individuals. Uh, 
the principle which ties morality to politics is the principle that no man has the right to initiate physical force, violence, compulsion against other men. Men have certainly the right of self-defense, but no man, no group of men, that includes the government, has the right to initiate force and to force a man to act against his own judgment. Now this is the essence of the philosophy. Your objectivism is, in a way, of course, why there's so much controversy, is that it is almost contrary to, I guess, the cultural beliefs as people have been brought up, true, as to sacrifice the good of your fellow men and uh, not to have the self-egoism uh, and self-sacrifice, as you call it. Not almost contrary, the exact opposite. And you're saying that man should first serve his own self-interests and be interested in himself first. I wouldn't say first, I would say only, but you would have to explain this. Other men can be of interest to an individual if they represent values, moral values. You serve your own interest best by finding, associating with, working with the right kind of people. Therefore, other people can be a value, a great value to a man, but only when and if they correspond to his moral ideas, not otherwise. In other words, man does not have to serve anyone except himself, but he does, in effect, serve others when their interests and their values agree. You, you discuss values quite frequently and why men need values and how they get their values because you say man comes into the world without any preset notion of values or concepts and learns why is it that we were discussing youngsters this afternoon that you find very young children who are by nature selfish young children are completely self-oriented now do they learn that or is that something that is inherent in the in the very young that they are completely self-oriented uh, well i think that's inherent in everything that's living it's inherent in any living entity, an entity which was not concerned with itself, or, put it better, an entity that did not value itself, would not exist for very long. But now, children are below uh, the understanding of the issues, they in effect do not yet have a choice. It is when children begin to speak, when they begin to acquire ideas that their choice begins. And the idea of self-sacrifice is a totally artificial, very evil idea which children and adults learn from others, which is passed from person to person. Now, it doesn't mean that if a child were left alone, he would naturally be selfish properly. No, because it is an enormous achievement to discover rational selfishness, not acting on the whim or pleasure of the moment, but knowing what is rationally an important goal of what value is it you and how to achieve it. The uh, idea of being rationally selfish is not uh, available to children. It would take a long period of thought or the proper teaching for them to discover it. You say man is an end to himself. Uh, you say A is A and existence is existence and That's we are right. here as an end to itself. Why is it that man throughout I guess at least recorded history, needs, seems to need something else, a belief, which you do not believe in, uh, I assume, that they do not believe in the existence of the Supreme Being or God or Creator or whatever no, I do not. you want to label it. Why has man then 
seem to need that ever since man has been on Earth. Uh, I, uh, is, he, is it to, to rationalize his existence here? I uh, wouldn't call it a need. I would say he has resorted to it by default because all the content of man's consciousness he has to acquire. He has to acquire by thought, by knowledge. He has to discover it by default of a proper understanding of life, which means of a proper philosophy of life. Man resort to blind taste. Uh, it is a phenomenon of default. Men have not yet progressed out of it. You don't think it serves a need for many people? Uh, you, you say it's a need, that. but you say it's the wrong because it's a wrong need. It's, is that a, it? it's a need that fills a vacuum uh, in the sense that the actual need is for a conscious philosophy of life. Man is a conceptual being. He can't exist range of the moment. He needs a larger view, a long-range plan. By default of proper rational principles, he falls on religion because that is all that is offered to him. So that I regard religion as the infancy of mankind. It is uh, the pre-philosophical stage and a great many people uh, still in their infancy. You have many lectures at, at the colleges. Uh, oh, yeah. what is, do, you, do you find the feeling, that, that type of a feeling, away from uh, religion per se and more in your, as you say, completely rational reasoning without faith? I've never attempted to take a poll of those issues, but I just wonder what they t asked you and what they discussed with you. Oh, yes. Here's what I find. That young people, particularly in colleges, are enormously anxious to find rational answers. This is not to say that they will all necessarily always be rational, but they need the uh, quest for understanding, for an integrated, consistent view of life is there enormously and tragically. Uh, if you begin to speak to them about faith or religion or any form of mysticism, most of them will not listen with great interest. When you talk about morality and setting a, a sense of values, um, does each individual set his own standard of morality? Because one person's morality affects those around him, does it not? No. It does not? Uh, oh, it affects it all, right. No, but uh, to say that each person sets his own standard would simply mean subjectivity. <laughs> no, what sets the standards is the science of ethics. That is a branch of philosophy. Its particular task is to define moral standards. Then it is up to each individual to decide what he agrees with, which standards he considers right, if he thinks, which standards he considers rational. Now, an individual may discover a new set of standards, but it is not subjective, it is not just up to him. If he discovers such a subjective code, this is not really morality, this is not ethics, that's just what we call whim worship.